following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Jaws, Westworld, The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, Jurassic World, colon, Fallen Kingdom, Loki, Mr. Robot, The Last Jedi, Schindler's List, The Avengers, AI, colon, Artificial Intelligence, The Shining, The Mitchells versus The Machines, and Hunt for the Wilder People. See the dinosaurs, pretty dinosaurs, see them laugh and jump and play. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or insane geneticists who have more hubris than sense. I'm your host, Luigi, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. And this week, I'm talking to two of my very good uh, friends from from back in my high school days, um, who I haven't actually reconnected with in a while, but I'm very excited to talk to them about one of my favorite movies, one of their favorite movies. I have Alana Jane and Charlene Perry. Alana and Charlene, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Why don't we go uh, one by one, and you can each sort of introduce yourselves. and I'd like each of you to just tell me the, the movie that we're watching today and what uh, sort of your history with it. Like maybe if you could talk about the first time you saw it or um, kind of like your what, what you love about this movie, uh, just as, a, as an introduction to yourself. Um, why don't we start with Alana? Cool. OK, so we're watching Jurassic Park, uh, one of my all time favorites, one that I tend to watch every year. And um, you mentioned the first time watching, and I remember it so clearly. It was my friend's ninth birthday, and we went all together, and um, it just blew, like it just blew my mind. And my mom was sitting between my sister and me, and she kept covering my sister's face. She's two years younger than me, and my sister was like, "Stop it!" And um, <laughs> but I didn't have to have the eye cover because I was all cool and nine years old. Um, so, but I just like, I remember the the sound, like it was like kind of early days of the Dolby surround setup in movie theaters. And like, yeah. there's lots of creepy um, action coming from different angles and it was really absorbing and cool. And it just, it stayed with me. I would hear the music. Uh, like I, I made my mom buy the soundtrack immediately. And then the last thing I'll say is that I took a lot later that summer, I took a course to make a hypercard stack, which was like a pre-internet like PowerPoint thing where you could link through all these pictures. And I like drew a picture of a dinosaur with Microsoft paint. And I like tried to make a sound clip of uh, Richard Attenborough saying, welcome to draft. Like it was just, it was involved. Like I was, <laughs> I was such a fan and I got all dinosaur stuff for, for holidays for like the next five years. Like it was a moment. So cool. Yeah. The sound, <laughs> the sound design is just one of the most brilliant aspects of this movie. Yes. Agree. Because I mean, just first of all, how do you how do you know what a dinosaur sounds like, and how do you even try to guess at it? And I don't know when I when I look at these dinosaurs and I hear them, it's I mean, my brain just goes, "Yep, that that seems right. That seems like what it would sound like." It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> great. It's so um, great. Awesome. So, Alana, um, you mentioned before we started recording that you're involved with an organization called Snacksack.org. Uh, would mm-hmm. you mind telling everybody a little bit about that? 
Yeah, cool. This was a, this is an organization I've been with for about four months, but it's existed for a year. It, it uh, came into being to address the urgent um, food access issues that were created by the, co- the COVID-19 shutdown. Uh, a lot of kids were dependent on school lunch and school breakfasts. And this um, woman that I'm now very close to, uh, Shamika um, House Osuya, responded to that need by um, pulling together all the resources of people that she knew in a direct giving model to fund families being able to actually purchase food that had once been given by the school because it was just, it was a panic and a scramble. And kids were like literally already being hungry as soon as schools were shut down. So it started there and it now has a more expansive reach. Uh, our current project is to send families to Disney, Disneyland, Disney World for the holidays, um, barring the Delta variant ruining everything. But that, that's, the, that's the point. Um, beyond food justice, the organization is also focused on joy and being able to enjoy life and having that be accessible for everyone. Um, and yes, I will, I will send Lewis the links for that so you can grab them out of the show notes. Yeah, so listeners, if you want to know more about snacksack.org or get involved, which I encourage you to do, uh, check out the link in the show notes, please. Um, thanks, Alana. Yeah. So Charlene, same question. Um, I'd like you to sort of introduce yourself, talk about some of the things you do, but especially I want you to talk about your your history with this movie. Okay, uh, so I uh, am a blogger and an artist. Uh, my blog is The Illusion of Controlled Chaos. Uh, that's on WordPress. Um, and I sell art uh, via Redbubble. Uh, and that is, uh, my artist name is Remarkable Chaos. Uh, and you'll have the links for that. I'll send Absolutely. them to you later. Um, so I did not get to see this movie in the theaters when it came out because my parents, uh, were not certain that I was quite old enough to see it. Uh, so I'm actually uncertain of how long it was after it came out when I was finally allowed to see it. Um, I watched it. My parents had a TV in their bedroom. Uh, So I was sitting at the end of my parents' bed, right up next to the TV, watching (laughs) this movie. Uh, My dad was in the room to make sure that I didn't get too freaked out. And uh, everything was good. I was completely immersed into the movie. And then there's this one jump scare. And then my dad was like, oh, that got you. And, you know... (laughs) Is it when Dr. Sattler gets the the, the, the velociraptor on her shoulder? Uh, I think that's it's a good the, jump scare. I think uh, when Lex is in the, the ceiling panels and uh, yeah. falls down and then yep. the velociraptor jumps up after her. Uh, although I was paying so much attention waiting for this jump scare when I was rewatching it this time that I think I ruined it. It doesn't work on me anymore. So <laughs> you're inoculated. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, awesome. Awesome. I I saw this movie when it came out um, in the theater. Of course, I I was a huge fan of dinosaurs before that. I, I wanted I actually wanted to be a paleontologist when I was a kid. And yep. <laughs> when I saw trailers for this movie, my I I couldn't stop talking about it. I couldn't shut up about it. And it was coming out like four days before my my tenth birthday. 
Um, so of course that's what I was going to do for my birthday. And my mom got tickets. And then this was like such a huge movie that I remember my mom bought tickets in advance and we still, when we got to the theater, had to wait for a full showing to get out because they had oversold all of the theaters. And we had to like sit there for the whole runtime of the movie to wait for the next theater to open up so we we could go in and watch it. Um, it was crazy. Yeah. I've never ever waited in a line for a movie for that long. Like I'm talking like amusement park level of lines, um, but it was absolutely worth it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel any regret for the time. I don't know how my mom felt, but I don't feel any regret <laughs> for the up to, uh, to, in total four hours that I spent watching it the first time. Um, it's been re-released a few times and I've, I've made an effort to go see it every single time it's been re-released. Um, I've owned it on every form of physical media that it's available on. It's no exaggeration to say this is my favorite movie of all time. It is apparently playing in Connecticut at select theaters right now. Right now. What's the yep. occasion? Is there any reason or are they just, uh, they're just or, deciding to show it? Or it's right now or coming up in like a couple of weeks or something like that. It was uh, something that popped up when I was doing research online. Uh, uh, but I am not sure what the occasion is. Uh, I think it's somewhere in Mystic that it's showing right now. So I wonder if it's just, you know, well, movie theaters are starting to reopen. There's not a whole lot of new movies coming That's out. Let's go with one of the old standards. Let's go with something we know will draw people to the theater. Although, okay. isn't another Jurassic Park movie supposed to be coming out next year? So they might be starting to hype up for that. That's a good call too. Maybe they'll be like releasing them all at the theater all incrementally like up until then. Star Wars prequel trilogy came in before that. They did all the all the um, OT stuff. It, yep. It's funny that there's enough Jurassic Park movies to do that, right? To make it a whole <laughs> franchise event. Them, man. Can we, since since I think, I, I, I would assume that most listeners have seen this movie and they don't need us to explain the whole plot. So we don't need to go like beat by beat through the whole thing. Um, why don't we spend a few minutes? Can we talk about like what we all feel about the franchise as a whole? Because I think I think that I have some surprising opinions on it, but I'd love to hear what y'all think first. Uh, go ahead, Milena. Okay, um, I will freely admit that I didn't touch the rest of the franchise because I'm preserving the original one in my mind. <laughs> I've gotten Ooh. burned by franchise expansions that go and like retcon horrible things or in other in other ways betray me, and I've kept this one holy. Even though there's one with Chris Pratt, who I like on a professional level, on not a personal level, but um, and I would have, I I think someday I will end up watching that, like maybe on an airplane or something. Um, but yeah, like I'm keeping it keeping it in a holy place for myself. Interesting. So I have seen all of the movies that are available so far, um, and. I will say that uh, the second movie, I think it's the second movie. The second movie is the one where there's uh, dinosaurs in people's backyards, right? That's right. The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park, where they bring the T-Rex to San Diego. Sorry to spoil it for you, Alana, but they do bring a T-Rex and it roams the streets of San Diego. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> that movie, uh, after watching that, uh, I actually, I think I actually saw that one in the theater. Um, I was actually afraid to look out my bedroom window at night for a while because I was convinced I was going to see a dinosaur in my backyard. 
So, awesome. but yeah, I um, I've seen all of the movies. Uh, I am anxiously waiting the movie that's coming out next year, hopefully mm-hmm. next year. Um, and I enjoyed all of them. Um, the first one's the best. Um, they Clearly. do get more and more out there as you continue on. <laughs> but uh, it's fun. They're all fun to watch. Mm. I, I agree that they're all tremendously fun. The first one is the best one by a wide margin. Like the second best Jurassic Park movie in the franchise is nowhere. It's not even in the It's like minor leagues versus major league baseball. <laughs> if you compare them. Um, but still they're very, very fun. And I actually think the latest one is, is the second best one Jurassic world fallen kingdom. I've, I've gotten yep. into very, uh, very big debates with people about this. And people have told me how disappointed they are with my opinion on this, considering how big of a fan I am of the original, but awesome. Jurassic world fallen kingdom sets up like the next movie is probably going to be even better because it sets up the promise of what this movie or the, I'm sorry, the premise of what this movie promised, which is dinosaurs and people coexisting in the whole world. Like the dinosaurs are out of the park at this point, And now we're going to see like what, what kind of chaos uh, as, as Ian Malcolm predicted, is there going to be in, in our regular world? And they sort of give us glimpses of that in Fallen Kingdom. There's also a dinosaur Especially auction. Especially the, the, the post credit. Yeah. Scene? Yeah. 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 So I'm thrilled. And I, I just love the direction it went in. It, it actually brought up some interesting philosophical questions about genetics and cloning um, yeah. that that I don't want to spoil too much if you haven't seen it. But um, that is a fun that is a really fun one. And I, th- I, I don't know. I think all of them have some sort of merit. Um, but this is easily, easily, handily the, the number one with a bullet if you're comparing it to the rest of them. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about a little bit of the production of the movie. Um, Obviously, this was directed by Steven Spielberg, and this is Spielberg at peak Spielberg. This came out in 1993. I believe he was making Schindler's List at the same time, and Schindler's List was released like maybe a few months later or a few months earlier, I forget which. Um, I think that's one of the few times in his career, career that he's made two movies in the same year. But it's, it's also sort of this uh, perfect example of how Spielberg built his career, which is I'm going to do a movie for the studio and then I'm going to do one for me. And Jurassic Park was the one like, okay, great, I'm going to do your big blockbuster special effects movie because I'm the guy for that. But I'm going to do that so that I can make my passion mm-hmm. project Holocaust art project. Yeah. Um, which I just think is a really cool thing about him. And this this movie is, I think... I honestly think it's his best work and I think it's him firing on all cylinders and it's like, this is what you get Spielberg to do. Ooh, see, I think it's tied with Jaws, which is interesting because it's Ooh. 20 years after, but I see many connections between the two and there, I, I guess Jaws Park is more polished, but the same like focus on like a classic um, Hitchcock, like foreshadowing thing there that's firing on all cylinders in both of these works. And I think, mm. I think that is where he's best is when he's like, not that Hitchcock has like a monopoly on, on how to foreshadow, but like, it's just, it's, it's all there in these little touches, um, both visual and in the dialogue. And I, I, I really love that. And it, it gives a very good story structure. Like one, I don't know if this comment is exactly on point, but I noticed rewatching as an adult, it's kind of heavy handed, 
But when I was a kid, I was like, I'm solving the mystery. I'm anticipating cool stuff. Like it just, it really spoke to me on that level. And it just was so enjoyable at that time that I like can now accept the heavy handedness. It's like, ah, shucks. Like it doesn't, it doesn't bother me the way it might watching a new project as an adult. It's just, it's very interesting. And, uh, it's just, it's very, it's, it's, it's wonderful to study as like a, a way to unfold narrative and keep your audience. Yeah. Jaws is such a good comparison. Um, Spielberg is really good at, at fill, at, at letting your imagination fill in the blank spaces in between things. It's, it's, there's what he shows you, but the magic is what he doesn't show you. There's a, a crazy statistic. This movie is two hours and I think seven minutes long. There's 14 minutes of dinosaur footage in the whole thing. 14, that's it, 14 minutes of dinosaurs oh. on screen. But the rest of the time you're imagining these dinosaurs and you're hearing them and you, there's there's talk about them. So you feel like you're immersed in a dinosaur world the whole time, but you only see them for about 14 minutes of total screen time. Oh my God, I wonder how that stacks up with the ratio of shark to narrative about shark in Jaws. Probably also, similar. you have to shout out the like, production budgeting prowess of like we're just going to be afraid of the special effect for like 20 minutes and then we'll see it <laughs> yes that's a, the, the the jaws is such an apt comparison because the opening of this movie is it's basically a remake of the jaws opening right you've got this unseen monster and it's literally thrashing this person around like they're a rag doll just weightlessly and you and, and you're not seeing what it is entirely you're just seeing the effect that um this person is getting ravaged by it from the darkness almost. And it, it builds up this mystery. You have no idea what this thing is until you see it later on. Um, and even then they just tease it and hide it from you until they show it in its full glory. And it pays off spectacularly because of that buildup. Yeah, it's so good. So like, and, and again, shout out to the sound design in the opening because it's all there, like all the fears from the sound design. Mm. And also the gamekeeper guy going, Shinota. Awesome. Uh, iconic. <laughs> What do you think of all that, Charlene? I want to make sure you can get in. <laughs> mm. Have you seen Jaws, Charlene? Have you seen Jaws? I have. Yes. I, I just actually very recently saw it. So yeah, I, I am seeing all of the uh, the comparisons and how uh, there's... Well, I actually just recently listened to your podcast talking about Jaws uh, and talking <laughs> about that uh, part of the reason why you don't see as much of the shark as they originally planned is because the robotic shark went rogue and decided mm. it wasn't going to do what the humans wanted to do. So I'm uncertain of, uh, I know that there are some practical effects uh, in this movie. It's probably the the smaller, like the velociraptor claws. Uh, and, you know, those are probably practical. Uh, I'm guessing that pretty much everything else is CGI, uh, which like props to the actors for, they're acting with imaginary dinosaurs <laughs> running toward them, running past them, you know, actually making us believe that they are terrified when there's nothing there. <laughs> mm -hmm. General rule with this movie is that there, um, anytime you see a, a part of a dinosaur, like a leg, a foot, a, a head, a claw, an eye, that's usually a practical, like built Muppet or, or animatronic, um, but whenever you see a full dinosaur, full body, that's usually CGI. With, I think, the exception of the Dilophosaurus, I'm pretty sure the Dilophosaurus is a animatronic when you see it in full body. 
That's um, the one who takes Newman out, right? Sure does. Yeah, it's yeah. my favorite sequence in the movie. <laughs> Actually, I would probably say that about every sequence in the movie, so don't take that with a grain of salt. I started laughing when you brought up animatronics uh, Mm. because re-watching the movie last night, there was, during the tour, when Donald Gennaro, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Blood-sucking lawyer? Yes. (laughs) He asks if the lab workers are auto-erotica. And John (laughs) Hammond... I not even take notice. Like he just says, we have no animatronics here. <laughs> Wait, yeah. This joke just flew right over my head when I was young. I mean, I'm sure that my parents were so relieved that I didn't notice this joke when I was younger. <laughs> A lot going on. The way he asked that question is hilarious because he he's like, "Are these characters uh, auto uh, erotica?" and <laughs> Like, for one thing, you think, you're thinking that you're in the Hall of Presidents at Epcot and also that they look this realistic. Like, for one thing, that's one layer of it. But also, he he landed the word, he, it was like he was struggling to find the right word and he landed on autoerotica. So he also thinks these are sex robots. Like, I don't know, I don't know how he drew that conclusion instead of, oh, we're actually looking through the glass at scientists in a lab working, like, his brain just made that leap so quickly. I don't know. It's 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 crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I, I'm just thinking, this guy's a lawyer. He's supposed to mm. be one of the smartest people in the room, and that's what comes <laughs> out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's like a tacit con- condemnation of uh, being suspicious of lawyers and what they're like between behind closed doors. Like the first thing that comes to his mind <laughs> is that. That's because he knows the term. That's, that's that's how it landed on me, and I was like, "Come on, it's so good though." Yeah, what one one thing actually, I I notice something new about the movie every single time I watch it, and I I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say I've seen it over a hundred times. But this time, the thing that was new to me was particularly Donald Gennaro in that scene, when the Mr. DNA video starts, he is like leaning forward in his seat. Like it's the only time in the movie we see this guy is like, ooh, I'm excited. Like I'm learning about this cool thing. And it's like, he's a little kid for this moment. And it shows you the magic of this place. Like the fact that John Hammond is a monster, but he was right about this thing that it will capture everybody's imagination like everybody will be enthralled by the magic of this park even mm-hmm. the blood-sucking lawyer who's otherwise <laughs> oh inhuman i was uh so in viewing the same scene with like the mr dna um animation i i remember how much i my brain wanted to say dinosaur instead of dinosaur like for a year after i watched it the first time as a, as a kid and now i'm seeing it and i wonder if so the the Loki series was on Disney Plus and there's a character called Miss Minutes and yes. she's like another like flat flat painted animated character and I kind of maybe think that that is a like a like a reference or an homage to Mr. DNA because it like seems so innocuous and then it turns out it's so <laughs> not <laughs> it just rem- it, like it really reminded me of that because I recently watched the Loki series. That's so funny. I Ryan Lawler and I reviewed every episode of Loki, and we talked about that at length during the pilot. Um, we were we were talking about like 
Miss Minutes reminds me so much of Mr. DNA because it's this genial Southern gal explaining some high concept crazy thing to you in in a with illustrations and in a real easy watered down way for you to understand. So like, it's just I don't know. There's something. Yeah, it, it's funny that 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 you drew that same parallel. Yeah, I just it makes me think they're fans, which just mm. makes me fond of the writers' room over at Loki. <laughs> <laughs> Another character that we meet in that scene, since we're talking about the Mr. DNA scene, is is Dr. Wu. And Alana, I would like to ask you, since you haven't seen any of the sequels, where do you think Dr. Wu ends up after this movie? What direction would you assume they take that character in? I think it'd be real weird to lean in. So I'm going to go with a 180. Like maybe he's like a museum docent. Uh, maybe he's a stay-at-home somebody uh stay-at-home husband stay-at-home father um yeah so he either he either runs toward it or runs in the opposite direction that's those are the two options that i see charlene do you want to tell her (laughs) should i spoil it for you yeah please that's fine (laughs) uh he turns into a very bad guy a bad guy like mustache twirling villain hell yes yeah, um, it's, remind me of the actor. Is it, it is it Beanie Wong? Beanie Wong, and it yes. rules. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome! He's he's real solid and enjoyable. So I'm glad they actually gave him a villain arc because villain arcs are the shit. Yeah, and he, he he's like going full. I don't know if you've seen Mr. Robot, but he's like going full, leaning into that level of like villain character. And it's no, amazing. I haven't, but I'm gonna put it on the list because I'm a fan. <laughs> so awesome. Um, yeah, because in this in this character in this scene, we get the you, we get that really famous um, talk about you know the the like your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they should and 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 they're they're watching this baby Velociraptor uh, hatch and they're talking about how like they have they have control over the park they they've engineered all the dinosaurs to be to be female <laughs> um, and you see the hubris of Doctor Wu. And you see that he's this ambitious young scientist or like he's arrogant at the very least. But man, I really wasn't expecting for where they end up taking this character. And it's so great. It's it's so awesome when you see that turn in later movies. Good to know. That makes me interested. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Ian Malcolm's line about the scientists being so preoccupied about whether or not they could, they never stopped to think that whether or not they should. Mm. One of my all-time favorite movie quotes. It's an awesome philosophical kernel. It's all there. Like, that's the whole mm-hmm. treatise. It's so interesting. And it is another of Crichton's obsessions, if you read his work. Um, he explores a lot of, like, the limits of scientific discovery and, what, like, like, the morality behind it. It's just, it's like a really nice condensation into one sentence. And it sounds great in Jeff Goldblum's mouth, because, of course, yeah. it does. <laughs> Yeah, it almost sounds uh, sounds convincing coming out of John Hammond's mouth when he's like, um, "How can we stand in the light of discovery and not act?" You're almost because he's such a good salesman. Like that's what at the end of the day, John Hammond is the best. The best thing, the thing he's best at is being a huckster and selling you on something that even that might be bad for you, but he's mm-hmm. going to convince you. No, this is good for the world. This is good for scientific discovery and progress. Oh my gosh! I Oh, go ahead, that whole scene where he's talking about uh, the first thing that he did when he came over from Scotland, was it? Uh, was the, the flea circus hmm. and how 
It's all, I've lost the word. Illusion. Um, An illusion. Yes. Uh, but the um, run by machines, basically tiny, tiny little motors and whatnot, but that mm. people would line up uh, to watch it and, and they would swear that they could see the fleas and how this was a scaled up version of that. Only you can actually really see everything. Oh, shoot. I forgot her name. Is it Ellie? Dr. Ellie Sattler. Yep. Yep. Tells her, tells him it's still an illusion. Mm-hmm. You never had any power here. You just thought you did. Yeah. You surrounded yourself with monsters on Twitter. So sorry. Go ahead. I like what you're saying about Huckster. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I like what you were saying about Huckster, um, that he's like a snake oil salesman because he's like so fancy, but he's like working with nothing like a real Wizard of Oz kind of thing. I hadn't thought about it from that angle, but it's really interesting. Yeah, he's he's just selling you on a dream. He doesn't actually care about these animals. He doesn't actually care about the the science or the progress of it or what this says about genetics. He just cares like I can create this thing that nobody's ever seen before and make money from it. Because uh, that that is, there's a few times in the movie where they talk about destroying the dinosaurs because the experiment failed or because the park failed and it can't open, it's too dangerous. And he flips out. Like one time is when they're talking about, and actually this is one of my big questions about the movie, um, when they're talking about the Lysine contingency. And I have a lot to say about that, but, but, <laughs> but Robert Muldoon suggests um, we could put the Lysine contingency into effect. And then uh, do- and Dr. Arnold, um, Samuel L. Jackson, explains what that is, which is if these dinosaurs don't get a regular injection of the uh, amino acid lysine, um, they, they were genetically designed by Dr. Wu to not be able to produce uh, that, per- that correct protein or process, I-, I guess, from their food. They're not able to digest it from their food. So without us giving an, an injection, they will all die eventually on their own. John Hammond, as soon as he hears that, he says, uh, uh, Muldoon says, what about the license contingency? We could put that into effect. And Muldoon says, that is absolutely out of the question. Um, and then later, the, the raptors are gonna break through the glass when they're, when they're like all struggling to, tr- to close the door and they figured out how to open the door. And um, Grant is on the phone with Hammond and he's like, and, and, and you hear Ellie shouting in the background, it's going to break through the glass. And then they're like, you hear the gunshots and John Hammond flips out over the phone. He just screams, don't. Like, why at this yeah. point are you being protective of, of these dinosaurs? See, watching that, watching that scene, I was wondering, was he actually worried about his grandchildren who were in the room Mm-mm. at the time with the gunshots or was in... But now it all makes sense because he's afraid that the dinosaurs are getting killed. It's his investment. That's how he makes money. Yep. Yeah, no, I don't. I really don't think he uh, cares all that much about his grandkids. Like, obviously, uh, you know, he's a grandpa. He's he's a cool grandpa. Um, he's nice enough. But I don't think he cares about them too much. He actually refers to them explicitly as um, the target audience of the yes. park. And that yes, seems to be one of his that. primary motivators for inviting them in the first place. Um, yep. he, sure. he does. This is a fun bit of trivia. I don't know if either of you have noticed this, but I would love to, I'd love to hear if you have or if you've noticed anything else similar in the movie. Um, John Hammond accidentally saves his grandkids' lives. So in the scene that we were talking about where he's having ice cream with Dr. Sattler, 
Uh, he has all of these pints of ice cream out on the table. And when she finds him eating them, he says, oh, you know, they were all melting. Um, so, you know, I figured I would just drown myself in sorrows eating this ice cream, whatever. And they have a whole conversation. Later on, Lex and Tim are escaping two raptors in the kitchen. Tim takes off running towards the freezer, which the door to the freezer is open. Somebody left that freezer door open. And Tim is able to run inside of it. The raptor chases him. He runs out and and traps it inside. The somebody that left that freezer door open is John Hammond when he was getting all that ice cream earlier on. Oh, my God. So he accidentally saved his grandkids' life. And the raptor, the raptor's not able to just quickly turn around and run out because there's all of this melting ice yep. that it's slipping on. It can't get a grip. Yep. Chaos. Mm. Yep. <laughs> it's really cool. There's so many things where like the movie sets up this little thing and like later on the time bomb explodes or the fuse goes off. And it's like that wasn't its original intended purpose. But the result is it either saves somebody or kills somebody. Mm-hmm. That, so, yeah, that, uh, just, that screams Hitch, Hitchcock to me, but that's, which is good. Like, it's, it's like same thing, like these micro details. I, I had not thought of that particular aspect with the freezer, but it does make sense because in normal circumstances, the door would be super heavy, if not actually locked. Yep. Yeah. And, and like Charlene was pointing out, the fact that it was left open meant there was melted puddles on the floor. So that's what made the wrapper slip when it actually ran in there. So that's, I think that's cool. So you're uh, in the uh, vein of show foreshadowing, mm. uh, the very beginning in the helicopter when they uh, hit the turbulence and mm-hmm. everybody is trying to put on their seatbelts. And Dr. Grant realizes that he has two female ends of a seatbelt, but he still finds a way to fasten that seatbelt. What? Yep. The poetry. Intentional foreshadowing? I think it is. I think you it can't is. Can't rule it out. Yeah. You um, can't prove it, with it. Because yeah, it's it's life finding a way to to in a in a. What does Dr. Grant say? In a um, single-sex environment, some species of West African frogs are known to change sex spontaneously. Um, life finds a way. And I just, I cannot believe that there are all of these extremely smart scientists that none of them thought about the fact that these frogs, that they're using this frog DNA to fill in the gaps, that nobody had this thought of, well, frogs are able to do this. Might we be passing this on to our dinosaurs? Ooh, yeah, I want to hear that. This one I thought about. This one I thought about how in the, and I have not actually researched this, and I'm not a biologist, but I'm talking out of my butt on this one. Um, I think like in the wild, the um, gen, like the, the, the sex change for the frogs is like spurred by them being alone with no um, ability to partner. Uh, and I thought maybe that the scientists were leaning on on the idea that the, the dinosaurs would not feel a mating urge without at least one male animal somewhere in their history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought maybe they had thought about it and thought it was like a zero risk situation based on the animals never having been around male versions of themselves. Like, so I thought I thought they maybe had thought of it. They just didn't. It was just like a like it, it's it's Malcolm's chaos coming on top of like a really 
close plan rather than rather than them ignoring that. But uh, they could easily have done either based on how it plays out. But I, I did yeah. give that one a think. <laughs> In one I, of my like plus viewings, <laughs> I was I was actively thinking about that this time I watched it during the hatching scene um, because I thought like as smart as Doctor Wu is and he's a he's a brilliant geneticist you would think like he would know that about biology that there are ecosystems where in a single sex environment some of the the organisms will spontaneously change sex but he literally says to Malcolm, when he's on his his monologue, um, he says, so you're proposing that a group entirely proposed, uh, composed of females will breed? As though mm-hmm. that's absolutely incredulous. And I noticed this time Dr. Grant doesn't say anything in the moment, but it's justified because he's absolutely enthralled by this hatching baby dinosaur that he's holding. So he's the only one that might have in that moment been like, well, actually, uh, West, uh, West African tree frogs, but he was very much not in the mindset to be like, well, actually he was just holding a baby dinosaur. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's actually a a deliberate script choice or directing choice or not. Um, But it is, at the very least, it is interesting that Dr. Wu didn't know that or didn't think of that. And none of the scientists ever did. And Mm -hmm. I do find it really funny that he had to ask what kind of dinosaur he was holding. Given (laughs) what what he was just finding at the dig site like what his his area of speciality like you know all that he knows about velociraptors like he doesn't recognize this for what it is although he's never seen one that isn't bones Mm. um which uh so bringing up the dig site uh i know there's been a lot of talk of when this movie came out, uh, we didn't know as much about dinosaurs as we do now, then. Um, But I will say that Dr. Grant uh, was actually ridiculed by everybody around him because he was talking about how dinosaurs actually have more in common with modern day birds than they do with reptiles. And yet, this movie still makes all of the dinosaurs look like reptiles. Mm -hmm. Was that, did they think, okay, they still have a whole lot in common with birds, but they, we still think that they looked like reptiles or was that an intentional choice by the producers or the studios because they thought this will look so much cooler. We're going with this. Oh, I have thoughts on that. I think you're, I think, Charlene, I think you just touched on it that like from, from a production standpoint, they wanted like the classic look of giant reptiles because that's what's all in all our cultural imagination. Mm -hmm. But I think the way they did touch on the bird thing is that the, the animals all vocalized really expansively and that is not a reptile trait. It's a bird trait. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of how they brought it in. And I think they did kind of give Dr. Grant like, sort of like a flat earther conspiracy theory energy about the bird thing, but it turns out that he's right uh, later. Um, It's just like, but it does make him like, it makes him like a weird version of his expertise, which I think is useful for the story energy. 
But yeah, like the, I especially noticed this now that I own a reptile as a pet, I have a tortoise and they never vocalize except during mating. And it's Mm. just like this one noise, it's one pitch, but the dinosaurs in the movie have a lot of different vocalization. Um, So I just, I noticed that again, rewatching that they're so noisy, which is not a reptile trait at all. Alana, I think you'd be delighted to see where that ends up uh, in the in the third Jurassic Park movie when they talk about Watch the vocalizations. You guys have me convinced I have a whole watch list now. Yeah, consider this too. The producer of, the, of this movie knew that kids going to see this movie in a movie theater are familiar with a certain image of dinosaurs and that's what they're expecting to see yeah. on screen. Yeah. But consider this, John Hammond has all the money in the world and he's the one in charge of this project and he has an idea of what dinosaurs should look like in his mind. So let's say he clones some dinosaurs and they look like birds. And he he might actually say, mm, that doesn't look right. That's not what our guests are gonna be expecting. So he has some control to give them more reptilian aspects in their appearance. And I think that like from the beginning, um, and actually Jurassic World kind of acknowledges this, from the beginning, these were never truly quote unquote dinosaurs. They're monsters they're hybrids of different animals which actually uh brings me to one of my big questions that i always ask my guests i'd like each of you to give me your definition of what is a dinosaur Uh, go ahead alana if you're ready (laughs) okay what is a dinosaur dude this is a big one okay so when i think about them i think about them as like kind of proof of the theory of evolution and proof of like how long like how difficult it is to actually conceptualize how long earth has been around and how time passes Mm -hmm. humans are incredibly bad at perceiving perceiving time so i think about them i think about their sort of significance in in like in the history of of earth like i have like an astronomy connection to them somehow Mm -hmm. because it like the kind of trying to think about ages and eras and how many thousands and millions of years they actually were and how many how many like the how the human um human presence on earth is like a fraction of one of the three periods that dinosaurs were around so it kind of i think about them in yeah like astronomy or like math terms so i I don't actually think of them very much as animals except when i'm near them like at the american museum of natural history in new york which has an extensive fossil collection and they're all beautifully mounted and very like alive mm-hmm. seeming like very energy how they're presented yeah so i think like i do think about them like super abstractly i would say charlene so um my experience with seeing dinosaur bones uh, was actually out in utah uh at the utah natural history museum which actually you uh interviewed somebody that works there eliza peterson yeah she's a um a, a amateur paleontologist she actually yes. might be a full full-on paleontologist at this point but yeah so i was super excited uh when i found out where she worked because i was like i've been there <laughs> so a dinosaur for me see there there's this war going on in my head knowing scientifically they they should have feathers they should not sound the way that they sound in the movies but i still see them as these giant reptiles in my mind they should also be thick too a lot of a lot of uh, scientists now are saying that we've shrink wrapped dinosaurs in our in our uh, traditional art artist depictions of them 
Um, that's the term they usually use is that they're shrink wrapped. Like we've just wrapped the skin right around their bones and imagine this is what they look like. But if you compare them to modern animals, um, they would have a lot more muscle and cushioning and padding and, and would be much, much bigger. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially like where some of the fossils were found, some of them had to be um, ready for cold weather. So mm-hmm. we'd need to have fat layer yeah. stuff, like more, more than they're conceptualized for sure. Elena, I thought it was um, fascinating what you said about how dinosaurs represent us in a way, like they represent our place in the timeline of the entire universe. Yeah. Um, or they, at least they give us a, a, a touchstone. They give us a point uh, of, of a point of reference is one way to put it. Um, this is this might sound a little bit silly, but that's part of the reason why this podcast is robots versus dinosaurs. Because I'm fascinated. I've always been fascinated with sci-fi, and dinosaurs and robots have always been the two biggest things in sci-fi that I've been that I've gravitated towards. And I think I've realized that the reason for that is because dinosaurs are a way of looking at the past and what was dominant on this planet before us. And robots are most likely what's going to inherit the planet once we make ourselves go extinct through pollution and everything else that we're doing (laughs) to make the planet uninhabitable, not for everything, but for ourselves. And so I think the robots that we're building are eventually going to inherit the planet, but that's a whole thing. but dinosaurs, like, I think it's crazy that we are, we like living in the year 2021, we're, we're one of few generations of humans that has existed so far that has the privilege of science and understanding um, fossils that we've discovered and understanding what that represents, building models of what the earth used to look like based around that and having not a complete understanding, but at least some somewhat of an understanding of what that could have looked like. You know, we're not just digging up uh, fossils and going, oh my God, that must be a dragon or hearing thunder mm-hmm. and saying, oh my God, that must be Zeus. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we've, we've come a long way since then, but we're also like, we are at a point where we can imagine a future after us too. Um, a realistic yeah. future, like a scientific future where we're robots exist without us or something like that mm-hmm. um so i just i think it's interesting that we we're, we land like right on the square of the, the square middle of this timeline where we can look back and forward and most human civilizations up to now have not had that privilege that's so interesting what you say about this moment in time being you could look back or look forward but while you're speaking it reminded me that you're not alone in this interest or perception because when i think about what you were just saying, I think about Crichton's other work, Westworld, and how it's focused on AI and what would happen if they drove humans out of existence because we're abusive and cruel, because mm-hmm. we are. <laughs> um, and it just, it also, so, there, so there's a serious take on this, like how he's regarding um, sort of the, the arrogance of creating dinosaurs and the, the arrogance of creating these super sentient AI who we eventually understand in the story can experience pain and memory and loss and grief. Um, the other thing that makes me smile about that whole thing is Crichton's low-key obsession with intellectual property laws and who needs to get punished for doing what with people's intellectual property. Like, it's a real plot driver for both of these pieces, which I just think is interesting. That's true. Because it's like such a... Um, such a grounded piece of like minutia to to push the plot, but it happens it happens in a huge way in both Jurassic Park and Westworld. So 
It's just, it's just so interesting. That guy's nuts, but I love him, Michael Crichton. Me too. That and that's exemplary of a lot of his work. It's that it's uh, cutting edge scientists that are all like on the edge of some big discovery or breakthrough, and a lot of times the plot is how much those different groups of those scientists are cutthroat towards each other because they want to be the first or they want to steal each other's yeah. credit for their work or something like that. Like even in this movie, that there's InGen um, is the is the comp is. Hammond's company that built the dinosaurs, but the reason everything quote unquote goes wrong is because this other company called Biosyn hired Dodson to hire, I guess Dodson is one of their employees, hired Dennis Nedry to sabotage the park. So like that's that right there. It's like two genetic, two nerd companies going after each other. Yes. All this death and destruction. That's what it was. Like that, that's what it was. Like that, that's the domino at the top of the, of the thing is is this squabble about who is going to get patents when and and where that ends up just to to somewhat spoil jurassic world fallen kingdom is at the point where um evil billionaires are selling dinosaurs to pretty much like gi joe cobra villains uh who want to use them as as weapons of mass destruction (laughs) Oh my God, like a major MCU plot driver who has the super soldier serum. Pretty much. <laughs> no. Nice, it's, nice. It's, it's insane. <laughs> and the prices that they go for, just when you watch it, pay attention to how much they are selling these dinosaurs for because it's ridiculous. In your opinion, Charlene, they, cheap or expensive? Cheap. Yeah. So, so cheap. Right? <laughs> Really? Like yes. way less than you'd think you have to pay to own a dinosaur. Yeah. Because I know that you talked about this with the previous guest, the cost of a tank compared to the cost of one of the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about this dinosaur as like a living tank. But a tank, you don't have to keep it alive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like there, there's there's upkeep, but and also a tank a tank encounters a landmine it's fine Mm -hmm. this dinosaur encounters a landmine it's not fine yep Mm -hmm. so you're spending all of this money uh you know but it's just it it's like you said i believe you said it's it's these bond villains gathering you know like the the whole point is not necessarily for having an efficient weapon it's Mm. just can we have the coolest weapon basically (laughs) yeah it's it's a it's a five-year-old's idea of what you would do to take over the world oh yeah i would use i would use dinosaurs and i would strap missile launchers to their backs or something (laughs) put a big pilot weird flex but okay (laughs) (laughs) oh I have a, a question that's more about like the characters in this movie. Um, yes, let's do that. So, so there's a there's a really cool uh, duality between Grant and Malcolm, um, doc, uh, paleontologist Dr. Grant, Dr. Alan Grant, who spends a lot of his time out in the field digging, and he doesn't bother with technology. Uh, he's very traditional and old school and all of that. And then you've got Dr. Ian Malcolm, um, who is a map a, a, a 
a crazy mathematician who's in this chaotic chaotician in this field of science <laughs> that has to be explained every time it comes up because um, yeah. that's how cutting edge and, and 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 nuanced it is. And he's described as the rock star, and you know he's just constantly flirting with with any woman that's in front of him. <laughs> Um, there is a cool, like bookend, two little bookends, uh, moments between these two characters where they're riding in a car together and one scene, um, uh, Malcolm is talking to Grant about, he's actually trying to like ask him, is Dr. Sattler available? And he's drinking alcohol from a flask that he brought and he offers some to Grant and Grant just sort of shakes his head. No, thank you. Later on when they're trapped in front of the T-Rex paddock, the cars have stopped Grant has his canteen, his water bottle. Um, he's filling it up with rainwater and he takes a sip of it and then offers it to Malcolm. Malcolm smiles and gladly accepts it. So you've got these two same characters in two different scenes where one of them is drinking <laughs> um, and offering <laughs> booze to the, sci- the, the paleontologist guy. He says, no, thank you. Then later on, that guy is drinking water and offers some to Malcolm. My, my conclusion that I draw from this is Malcolm, uh, I'm sorry, um, Grant is good for Malcolm. Malcolm's not good for Grant, but I like seeing them together. I don't know. <laughs> Am I reading too much into that? So I totally missed the fact that it was a flask with alcohol. Mm. All of the times that I've watched it, I totally missed that until you Actually, just brought it up. Same. I didn't register it either. Oh man. It's so interesting. Yeah. It's, it's when they're just, uh, it's after, it's after it, the scenes are almost back to back because it's right after the sick triceratops and Ellie Sattler mm-hmm. goes back with the veterinarian. And so yeah. it's just Grant and, and um, uh, Malcolm in the car alone together. And it's when he's yeah. like, yo, so uh, Dr. Sattler, she's not like available, is she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I can picture it. And now I'm wondering how it never registered that that was alcohol, but. I think it's because I didn't know it when I was nine. Mm. Yeah. And I just let it, <laughs> just let it ride. I didn't, yep. I, I didn't change my <laughs> I also, I could be wrong and it could just be a water can or he could just be drinking no, water I'm out of it. Right. But knowing who yeah, Ian Malcolm is, like he probably brought yeah. some booze with him. <laughs> what if it was too boring? He's not going to tolerate that. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just a little bit of a sensation seeker oh man i do i do notice that his dialogue does not age particularly well and it's very tropey um but it but he does i think jeff goldblum does really interesting line readings off of what he's given Mm. he's writing the line of creeper and like my 2021 sensibility it's not okay but like there's something there it it, it sounds novel at least coming from him which I can appreciate like kudos to to Jeff Goldblum but I remember thinking thinking in character terms even when I was not impressed anymore with his um creeping on Dr. Sattler I still I still bring him back into the fold because when the kids are in danger he tries to help them Mm -hmm. like he literally pulls the focus of the t-rex off of the children which is like that could have killed them and he did it anyway And that, like, that makes me root for him still, um, just because, like, he's more he's more complicated than the little shell that they give him. That scene so, that you just brought up, though, did he really need to light that flare? Because wasn't the T-Rex already running off in a different direction? Yeah. And he lights, was, yeah. And he lights a flare and kind of ruins what Dr. Grant had already set up. 
Yep. Uh, that is true. He does. He does interrupt it. Yep. But he, his heart is in the right place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He, he's always a show off. Uh, he's still my mm-hmm. favorite character, though. <laughs> my favorite character in this movie is Dr. Ellie Sattler, played, of course, by Laura Dern, who rules. Um, she does. She is. I I have thought a lot about where this movie is in in the timeline of movies and uh, and like especially if we're looking back at it through a modern lens like there's a lot of comedies from this era from the early 90s that I'm afraid to go back and watch cuz every time I do I'm like oh no this is this is problematic in so many ways um this movie one thing I noticed is Dr. Sattler gets objectified by Dr. Malcolm, but the movie never objectifies her, never once. Yes. And, I, and I appreciate I that cool. on a very deep level that like the movie respects her and gives her a lot of room to breathe and to be competent and to be like explaining things to other characters that nobody else has even thought of because of her level, her like field of expertise. Um, so I really appreciate yes. that. The movie allows her to stand up for herself as well. Yes. When, um, I can't believe I've forgotten the old guy's name. Hammond. Uh, Hammond. Yes, Hammond. Thank you. Uh, When he's like, I should be the one going to this shed. (laughs) And she's like, why, why should you? And he's like, because you're and I'm and just the withering look that she gives him. And, you know, how we will talk about sexism uh in we'll talk about sexism in survival situations when i get back it's such a badass line yes (laughs) (laughs) it is it's so good and she like because they give her like when when she first shows up on screen she's like she's with dr grant and she just she's very indulgent of him she's very like maternal with grant and with everyone else around her and I'm like, all right, you know, because it's like a soft, like, it's a soft choice to make with a with a female character. But yeah, that her her responses to the stress are are very centered. They're very like solution oriented. She's one of the better people to handle the stress of the situation in terms of like making making the, the right choices and responding quickly. So I appreciated that about her. Um, and I do appreciate how she's dressed super utilitarian. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got like, you know, she's got her button up and her buttons are actually like up and stuff. She's got a little kerchief and stuff. Like she is, like her legs are out, sure. And she's got fantastic legs, but like it's super utilitarian. They're they're in Costa Rica yeah. or they're near Costa Rica. It's fucking hot. That's why she's dressed like that. Yeah. <laughs> like it's warm outside. Um, Definitely. More- and the same thing with, the same thing with Lex. Like uh, Lex is also, like she's, She's like me. I think she's fourteen years old, Canon, something like that, something early like teen. That. Uh, and she's also just she looks like a kid. Like she's firmly in a kid lens, which was really important to me both at the time and now. Yeah. Um, there's like no creeper energy around around Lex, which is which is just very soothing for me. Um, <laughs> I do wish that there had been more Lex and Sattler time because Lex is a nerd and so is Sattler. But yeah. um, it what that is not what happened. They 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 went ahead and did like a hook flavor of um of uh spielberg where it's like a, an, a reluctant parent figure with the two kids like he's that's one of the things he likes to visit i'm not sure why yeah, he loves to um, build um families that weren't families before yeah, yeah. that's great language for yeah. that totally 
Um, so it did give us opportunities with Dr. Grant, but, um, but, it, but Sadler does get a good, she gets a good arc all by herself. Um, her and the power reactor, mm-hmm. um, her and the gameskeeper Muldoon, um, this good shit. And of course that scene with him and we were just touching on chef's kiss. Excellent writing. It was all said in one sentence, which I always admire. She also has one of my favorite throwaway lines in the whole movie, which is when uh, when they first meet Hammond and he's saying, um, there's no doubt our attractions will drive kids out of their minds. And yes. Alan Grant says, what are those? And she just very slyly turns to him and goes, small versions of adults, honey. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> it's so good. Because oh. you'd, mi- you'd miss it if you're like not looking for it or like, and she just, she, she gets away with it. She, it just gets yep. like, it just slips, slips it right in there. It's perfect timing. I also just want to note real quick that I appreciated the like, uh, Grand and Sadler, whatever's going on in their relationship, it's at like the comfortable sweater stage. Mm. Like they are not romantic to each other, but they, it's, it seems like they're an established couple, but it's just, it's like this sort of casual handling of each other. There's not, there's not actually tension in their relationship. Right. And they have, there's so much trust. Like mm-hmm. there's no questioning that of course Sadler is going to accompany the, the veterinarian and get to the bottom of this poisonous ancient plant mystery. Like there's, just, there's no, Grant is never trying to control her actions. Mm-hmm. Like they just they turned away from some of that couple stuff, which is great because there's no time for it anyway. But like, it just, it's, it's a very comfortable like finished relationship and it's like so they can go ahead and have that discussion with Malcolm and like of course Malcolm's not even a threat at all like even if he wasn't a total goofball still not, like even if he was better at trying to flirt than he is <laughs> still not, still no threat because they're just like they're so established with each other I enjoyed that me too so I just gotta say that the whole family building thing hmm. uh the, the the very last scene uh, in the helicopter when Grant's got the kids and he gives Ellie that look. I don't have kids. I don't ever plan on having kids. Going through the experience that they went through on that island, I would not come away deciding I'm going to have kids now. <laughs> um, hard same. Yeah. <laughs> a land- no, because like when you have a kid, all you really, like, so I have two children. Um, when you have a kid, you, the, you increase the chances that something tragic and out of your hands will like wound you forever. You like, you no. just like produce these two little core wound possibilities. And like, I don't, I don't like to think of them like, like that all the time because anxiety, but like, like that's what you wouldn't, if you just went through a dangerous experience, you wouldn't be like, cool, let me add more chaos <laughs> and more threat to my basic life by having children that I care about as much or or more as I care about myself. So yeah, like I would not be I would not be feeling Prager's energy coming off that island. That's profound. Like, That's really like profound. Dinosaurs, we know that dinosaurs exist and they are now running running wild. So yeah, let's let's have a kid. Mm-hmm. No. No, that's not. (laughs) Alana, do you think that Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler have kids in the later movies in this franchise? Do you think they have kids together? Dude, I really hope not. Because, like, so just, like, not to not to soapbox too much but like as someone who has children what that did to me is make me even more pro-choice than I was before because what is not great in our culture is reluctant parenthood Mm -hmm. like one partner one partner kind of like bargaining to have children with the other partner that energy is not good it is not stable enough um, it causes resentment between the parents, which is which plays out upon the children in all kinds of stressed out, horrible ways. So, like, I'm I'm pro 
having children, if both part, like all, if, if all the parents that are going to be involved are actually interested, mm-hmm. go for it. But like, if one of them is being coerced into it, guilted into it, like, oh, like, you know, I supported you during grad school, so you're going to impregnate me kind of energy. Like that is, that's, that's trash. And, and, and Grant's not on board, like yeah. having one vacation where he gets to keep kids from being killed by dinosaurs. Um, it, that's not like, that's not going to adjust his feelings on fatherhood. Um, so I'm going to hope that it's a no. What if I told you he goes on a second vacation where he has to pr- protect kids from getting eaten by dinosaurs? <laughs> And also, that that is not the timing when you want to be making these huge life-changing decisions. Mm. You've just been through trauma. Let it yeah, also stress is bad for fertility. Also, so. also, <laughs> they just made a huge discovery at their dig site at the beginning of the movie, yeah. which Hammond yeah, was going to yeah. give them more funding for three more years of digging. Years. So yep. that's not a good yeah. time maybe to, to get pregnant, right? <laughs> it's Hollywood, so maybe they sprung, but I hope I hope not. Do you mind if I spoil Jurassic um, Park 3 for you? Do it. So um, this is points points on the board for Jurassic, the Jurassic franchise. Your hopes and dreams come true. Dr. Sattler has kids. Dr. Grant does not. Um, oh, they they oh. do sort of a fake out in in the, in the movie in the middle of the movie where you think like they're still together and that like they show her kids and you think it's their kids together, but then it, it becomes mm-hmm. clear within minutes that. They, at some point in the timeline, at some point they broke up over their differences and she went on and had a family of her own, but he never, he never did. Awesome. That's actually very loving. In fact, he mm-hmm. actually becomes even more of a crazy flat earther, like crockpot reputation scientist in, in this world. Awesome. Yeah. Good. Cause that's how they started with it. That's actually, that, that helps me. Yeah. It makes me feel good. It's pretty great. I'm telling you the Jurassic franchise has excellent continuity. <laughs> So in oh, the, on the subject of kids, I just got to point out that uh, one thing that I noticed is that poor Tim mm. is absolutely the punching bag for this entire movie. Like well, He's the most useless person in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> like he's, he's the youngest one there and he goes through, well, I guess he technically dies, but they bring him back. Uh, Wump, we call that. He gets a wump. Yep. So yeah, like all of the the things that happen that don't actually kill people. Well, I guess there's Ian Malcolm as well, but uh, you don't really see what happened to Malcolm. Mm. You see everything that happens to Tim. That's a good point. Uh, that's all on screen. So that was one thing that I noticed. Uh, yeah, but I would say he deserves it because he never he, <laughs> ne- <laughs> he never contributes. Um, his knowledge of dinosaurs never actually helps anybody. He doesn't do any action that saves anybody else. And then at the end, when Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant are trying to hold the door closed and one of them can't reach this gun that's on the floor that <laughs> might help them out, what's Timmy doing during that? What's Timmy doing? He he is behind his sister, hitting the back of her chair as she yep. is trying to hack into the system. At one point, literally like grabbing his hair and pulling it out, like jump in. And it's like, just grab that gun and hand it to Dr. Sattler so she can save everybody, please. <laughs> 
It's um, a high bar for a kid, Luigi. Well, yeah, but then, but we got Lex in the same scene saving everyone's life by by hacking into the Unix system. So you know, she's older, but okay. Well, yes, she is older. That's true. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I look. I like Tim. I I obviously was Tim when I saw this. Like that's my proxy into this movie when I first saw it. So I I love Tim as a character. It's just I've identified him as the the most. Uh, the, the one that, like, having him around is more of a liability than an asset in this movie, mm-hmm. more than anybody else, except maybe the lawyer. So, uh, still on the subject of kids, um, there was something that I noticed while watching this movie that I don't know if uh, either of you noticed. Uh, so, in the scene where they first see the T-Rex and Donald abandons the kids... He leaves the door to the Jeep wide open. Mm. They show it wide open in several shots. But when we're seeing the Jeep from Dr. Ian Malcolm and Dr. Grant's point of view, as the T-Rex walks between the vehicles, all the doors of the kid's Jeep are closed. This is true. All the doors are also closed when Lex is waving the flashlight around until suddenly the door is wide open again for Tim to slam shut in the T-Rex's face. Yep. Yo, there it is. Yeah, there, there's there's unfortunately a lot of editing mistakes like that in this movie. At the end, when they're all climbing around the scaffolding, there's a very clear shot of Lex's uh, scaffolding dropping her or she loses her grip and falls. And then they repeat the shot and she's still holding on to it and drops her grip a second time. So like they clearly did multiple takes and somehow in the editing room, both takes got got into the final cut. But that that there's a lot of weird little mistake continuity errors and mistakes like that in this movie. I've never noticed the door one though. That's cool. Like, I wonder if they re- like. I wonder if they spent like they must have spent so much editing budget on polishing the CGI. And I wonder if they just kind of were like kind of scrambling. Also, Spielberg's pretty famous for his action pictures being late mm, um, yeah. and and out of their calendar. And I just I just kind of wonder if like some of the simpler things they were just like okay. Like, this out the door. True, true. Yeah, and it's. I don't know. I wonder. I I always wonder how the money is spent. Um, both actually at at every phase of production, but like the the goal and then what's actually happening in the face of production challenges. Like, I just think it must be so interesting to be um on the production staff and trying to watch what's happening with the with the funding and the availability of the talent and all that kind of stuff. Because this was a big one. Yeah. And a lot of the effects stand, you know, can I, can I speak some, uh, or can I mention something about effects? Absolutely. So what I noticed this time around was the incredibly bold choice to have it be raining as fuck during the T-Rex scene. Cause it's so hard to light, mm. but it's, it's lit beautifully. Like the, all the shots of the, of the T-Rex really hold up in my opinion. Mm. And of course you were mentioning before when it's the individual pieces of the animals that it was often uh, animatronic or a puppet, especially the foot spreading all the mud. Like that is so iconic. Um, and I just, and also the sound of the rain on the Jeeps is such an interesting piece of sound design. And it makes me, it's so present because actually now, like even now, even today when I was like out in a cloud burst, the sound of rain hitting the roof of a car makes me think of Jurassic Park. <laughs> like it's so, it's so like, it's like, so there's this joke in my household that like anytime there's creepy silence, I'm like, it's like Jurassic Park. Because <laughs> um, it's like, I'm thinking about the kitchen where it's like pin drop silent and you can hear them, like you hear them snorting on the window, like they're breathing on the window. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
like my I, I told my I told my spouse what I was doing today and he's like the dream because I was like appearing on a podcast <laughs> in front of this movie that's like such a brain worm for me but it's so funny like the the, the tiny details because like rain on a roof I've heard that so many times in my life and it's in other films too but the Jurassic Park rain on the roof that's special <laughs> and I just love like it, like thinking about like I, like I was just saying the decision to have it be raining mm. is so challenge mode and I think they really nailed it for this this piece of action in the middle of the film. They pulled everything off beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently that was it also led to a lot of problems, similarly to in Jaws. Um the, the animatronic T-Rex that they were using for that for that scene, uh I've heard that the crew colloquially nicknamed it Roberta. Um I don't know if you know, <laughs> but the shark in Jaws was nicknamed Bruce. And that's like a little, yeah. little common little, uh, little like known, well-known bit of movie trivia. But apparently um, the, the T-Rex's name in this movie is Roberta, or that's what the crew called her. And apparently Roberta um, got a lot of water into some of her servos. And the scene where the head is coming down and crashing into the sunroof, I've heard that um, the kids are screaming in actual terror because it like moved a little too far, like a few inches farther than it was supposed to and actually broke the plexiglass that they were pushing up against and they weren't expecting that. Uh, So apparently um, it, yeah, and like it would just, the jaws would open and shut on their own sometimes like a ghost. And they described it as like being very erratic every time it rained and they'd have to like shut things down for several hours until it dried out again. Damn, Spielberg and water. Yeah. <laughs> Out there challenging the, the crew. Yeah. Also, that reminds me, it's like like the the this the actual frightening of the children because the the scene didn't go as planned. It's like, oh, the ghost of Stanley Kubrick in there scaring the shit out of the actors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Come on, Roberta. I bet the thing was super heavy. Mm. It must have been so heavy. Yeah. The difference being, though, I don't think Spielberg, Spielberg would do everything in his power to prevent something like that from happening. Whereas Kubrick might, you might, he might engineer that to happen to get Mm -hmm. that reaction out of the children, you know, ethics be damned. Yes. So. A little casual sadism in your approach to your work. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you were talking about uh, the sound of rain. Mm. Um. So a different kind of sound. So rewatching it last night, I discovered that as a 38-year-old grown-ass woman, uh, I still weep when I hear the music that they play when you see the first full dinosaur. Mm. And then I weep even harder when they show them moving in herds. So question for both of you. Do, do you have the same emotional response every time that you hear that music? Because I, it actually carried over 2015 when they were going to be finally releasing a, a new Jurassic Park movie, the first Jurassic World one, when they were releasing the trailers and they made that choice to play that music, uh, chills and tears, and and they they did it intentionally. They knew exactly what it was going to do mm-hmm. to all of us yeah. who were alive when the originals came out. 
So my question, how does the, the music affect you guys? Elena, you want to take that first? Sure. Um, yeah, I definitely have teared up hearing the Jurassic Park theme in certain circumstances. Cause it's just like, I re- like the, seeing the, seeing the moment with the camera pointed at the actors first is so epic. And like, it's like, and like the sunglasses are on and then like the reveal of how surprised he actually is, is just, it's extremely emotional. Like it should be, like his face is doing so much that it should be too much. It should be on 11, but it's not. And part of that is what the score is doing. Mm. The score is matching the energy of his face and then Laura Dern's face. So it, it all settles. And then like, you're so ready for this incredibly expensive CGI reveal that they're about to do. Um, and it just, it really, it really works. And it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful example of John Williams's work elevating, um, elevating an action movie. Cause like, like this is a kind of a side point, but when I think about the OT of Star Wars, it is so much worse without the score. The score really <laughs> saves those movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's so, it's so, it's extremely powerful. It stays with you. It's definitely like a movie moment that would appear in like reels about like highlights of the nineties, especially um it just really it really works and like the the head turning um like grant turns her Mm. head and like we haven't seen like that's like it's just it's like it's like a lot but like you you really appreciate it when you see what in fact they're looking at yeah because she is so absorbed with that leaf and yeah she she loves yep because that that is her area of expertise yeah Mm-hmm. And it's just oh it's so good and like so i'm not the person to make lyrics for this song but there are lyrics for the for the jurassic park theme. how do they go are there really <laughs> yeah see the dinosaurs pretty dinosaurs see them laugh and jump and play <laughs> yes alana i might I did use, not make that up. i might use that for the intro for this episode <laughs> that little sound we do if you want um it is an <laughs> artist unknown um but i have heard those lyrics and i have to concentrate to kick them out of my head like i got ready to like <laughs> not hear them in order to enjoy this rewatch so it wouldn't be spoiled but like i used to have i used to have, i had like a john williams channel when i was studying in grad school mm. and like when, when this theme would come up i'd be like hell yeah i'm gonna do my discussion question like it's very motivating <laughs> so, yeah the- it's powerful the music in this is so effective and it's almost its own mm-hmm. character. And it definitely, I, it definitely gets me every single time. The, the sick triceratops is the the piece of music in this that moves me the most. Um, mm-hmm. There's just something so like sweeping and orchestral and, and it slows everything down in that moment. And it's like, like we're, we get this vicarious joy of Dr. Grant seeing his favorite dinosaur ever from when he was a kid um, and, and actually get to touch it and interact with it. Um, and and this the music that's playing over that scene is just absolutely gorgeous and, and brings a tear to my eye every time, every single time I hear it. Um, yeah. One quick thing that I just thought about in that, in that scene, <laughs> another thing that I, I started, I think I noticed it for the first time like a few viewings ago, when uh, Dr. Grant is so excited about the T-Rex or the, the Triceratops, he literally says this to his girlfriend, Dr. Sattler. Um, he says, this uh, the Triceratops was the mo- the, my favorite as a, when I was a kid. And now that I see it, 
it's the most beautiful thing I ever saw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he literally turns yeah. to his girlfriend and says those words <laughs> to her. And the funny thing is, is that like, she's absolutely fine with it. She gets it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> she knows, she knows who she's, dat- she's dating. Oh my God. So I, I also, Oh, go ahead. Charlene. So I have a question. The sick tri- triceratops. Did I mm-hmm. miss something during the rewatch? Like was they, they do not solve that during this movie. Uh, they were confused. And then Sattler has a theory that they're going to go chase down, which is she, she literally reaches into the animal's, Poop. Yep. Yeah. Poop. <laughs> um, and she, she's like, oh, like these, these berries that are planted around this animal, they would be toxic to, to this, like, you know, they're, they're poisonous. And the vet is like, oh, and so they're gonna, they're gonna bring it back. But I, I always remember that moment because she is like a world-class expert and she's like, let me in that shit. Mm-hmm. And it just like made me think about how, real expertise and real mastery like you will go all the way back to the bottom of the discipline and start over like you will just continually absorb yourself in ways to learn and experience and test theories and it just like I just like I really admire the way that she wears her expertise like she still brings so much student energy into every single day that she's working it really impressed me and stayed with me because I know that when she's digging through she does not find evidence of the berries, but she does find rats, which is probably important. I'm assuming. Mm. She find what does she find, Charlie? Rats. Rats. Does she? That's can R A T S. Where where does she find? I don't remember that. Where does she find rats? She said, unless I'm remembering wrong. As she's walking away, she she's I think she says that she found evidence that perhaps they're of course these are they wouldn't be eating rats. No. No. That's interesting. I I I've heard an explanation for why the triceratops was sick. And ultimately she was correct that it was the West Indian lilac berries berries. However, the reason she didn't find evidence of them in the stool is because um, do you know that bird, birds eat gravel to help them digest? Yeah. yeah. So the theory, and I think this this is expanded on in the actual book of Jurassic Park. There's a sick uh, stegosaurus, and it's a very similar scene. And I think they explain this in the book. Um, but the explanation is that the berries themselves were falling from their bushes onto gravel that the dinosaurs would eat. So the the dinosaurs wouldn't weren't eating the berries, but they were eating... this gravel that has juice from the berries on it to help them digest their actual food. So because that gravel- Which is the bird trait, by the way, the eating the rocks is a bird trait. Exactly, exactly. So so just that trace amount of the berry juice getting on the gravel made them sick. And that's what, like, that sort of proves her theory. Um, Or if she had had more time, I think, to investigate, Mm -hmm. she probably would have figured that out. But it just, it also very subtly shows the hubris and the arrogance of- everybody in control of this park. Yes, it super reminds me of this, um, just briefly, uh, I was reading this um, history of the the park service in the United States. And at one point they were given a park to take over and they decided to get rid of one of the species of fish that lived in a lake entirely. So they poisoned all the fish to get rid of them. And then they wanted to put a different kind of more fishable, more popular fish in the in this lake. And the entire little ecosystem 
utterly collapsed. I was going to say, that's how you ruin an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, like you can't just change nature for aesthetic reasons and have it just stick. Uh Like that is not a thing. And it's the same thing. Like, why do they put the plant there for aesthetic reasons um, without knowing what they were doing? Mm -hmm. So yeah, like you're just saying, um, Louie, an excellent example of the hubris of some of the experts that are running around. Yeah. I have one really weird point to make. Please. Um, there's room for a really weird point. So I don't know if anyone else out there had the paperback edition of Jurassic Park. Um, I, I picked it up. My parents let me buy it so I could read it when we went to Disney World when I was 10 because it was past when I'd seen the movie. And I was like, I'm going in. I'm going to the source. And in that book, in the section divisions, there are there was line drawn art of fractals yes and it starts really big it's like it's a sort of a classic turtle looking fractal with like it has it has like a shape and like a little thing that looks like a head so we start big and then each section it backs up more and more and more until you see this like giant spiral started by of a fractal like it lo- it's the fractal um example that you see when you when you look at examples of what a fractal is but it's just like it's so it's like it's so disturbingly chaotic to watch the picture get messier and messier and denser and denser and denser and creepier and creepier and it was just like such an interesting art choice for the publication of the book and also because um fract like uh chaoticians have studied fractals and why they always end up like that so it's like a nod to what um malcolm is always doing i don't know enough about it to explain better than that but um Fractals and chaoticians are besties. So I, I enjoyed that choice to bring that type of art in there. And the way it's, it, it, it like reminds me of a rack focus, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's like so tight and then it backs all the way up. Um, so it's just like that, like e- even now it's like 20 years since I looked at that. It, like, I don't, I don't have it anymore. I don't know what I, I probably gave it to a friend, honestly. Um, but I, like that stayed with me because it was like it was so creepy even though it's like a even though it's a picture yeah it like really added to the tension of reading reading the story because you like you would see a more disturbing version of the picture and then even more just i don't know that is cool. i am an anxious person i think that might have been <laughs> <laughs> twinging some of my anxiety but like chaos yeah, cha- weird point but i made it chaos and unpredictability in large systems is the overall theme of this and like the one another great example is like the the goat right they put the goat out to attract mm-hmm. the t-rex and malcolm's comments on that he says you know the t-rex doesn't have park schedules he doesn't have a, 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 a predictable pattern that you could just draw him in with a by feeding it whenever you want to and, and then grant grant later, talks about how he he the, the t-rex doesn't want to be fed yeah. it wants to yeah. hunt and later, it, the, the, the only reason the T-Rex figures out that the, the fence is no longer electrified is because that goat is there. And when it decides to get, to get hungry, it just so happens to be when the power goes out. So it very, I think, inadvertently puts its hand on the fence, realizes, oh, great, it's no longer electrified. I can get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that wouldn't have happened if they weren't trying to entice it in the first place with the goat. And then all of those people would have been fine. They wouldn't have gotten their cars flipped over by T-Rex. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were talking earlier about um, violence that we see on screen uh, and violence that we just see the aftermath of. Um, uh, so one little tidbit that I picked up 
while I was looking at stuff on the internet about this movie. As Alana said, uh, Nick Fury, uh, who uh, Nick Fury's alter ego, Samuel L. Jackson, who plays uh, John Raymond Ray Arnold in this movie. Uh, So obviously he's the first one that goes out to the shed and he's going to bring the power back on. We, we know that something's gone wrong simply because of how long he's been gone. Uh, and then we know that he is most likely dead when his arm falls on Ellie's shoulder. Uh, mm-hmm. So apparently he was supposed to actually have some scenes in the shed, but... There was an actual real-life hurricane that destroyed the set, and they could not get Nick Fury, a.k.a. Samuel L. Jackson, uh, to come back because it, in the time, they just they didn't have the time. So there should have been more action for him. Uh, we should have seen more of what happened to him, uh, but... Mother Nature in real life decided uh, that wasn't going to happen. I would love to see that, like, as a deleted scene. But I, om- I wonder if it works better that we don't see that. Like, we, mm-hmm. we are with Ellie and Mal- and uh, Muldoon. You know, we don't know what happened to him before they actually see that. So, like, I, I, I wonder if that would have been, if that would have actually ruined the the suspense of that. You know, like us mm-hmm. as the audience seeing what happened to him. Yeah. Interesting. It would have been like just for Samuel L. Jackson value, I would have enjoyed seeing him only because he's so great all the time. But I think story wise, um, you make an excellent point, um, Louis, because you, you don't want to jam too many POVs. It's, it can be hard to skip or it can be hard to keep tension from one if you move away from it for too long. So, yeah, it's it's interesting pacing discussion. Like we as the audience, we it's good for us to see what happens to Dennis Nedry, even though none yes. of the characters ever find out. But with <laughs> Arnold, it's kind of the opposite. Like we don't we don't see what happens to him until the characters find out. None of the characters find out. I never actually thought of that, but that's a very interesting kind of meted out punishment. Oh, yeah. Like he just vanishes and there's nothing. And and also no one find no one finds out about the stupid shaving cream can because mm-hmm. it goes like damage. like it's not going to be found and it, that's so you'll not ne- they'll never know the true impetus of the chaos that's so creepy i love it yeah <laughs> and then he has to pay by himself and then like just die unmarked and unmissed yeah and get eaten alive. i just i love when he is driving as fast as he can through that rain and he hits the sign <laughs> and then he picks it up and the arrow just kind of spins around and he just oh kind of spins it and decides whatever it lands on, that's the direction I'm going. And yep, that's, <laughs> that's where he, where he uh, sets himself up for ultimate failure. <laughs> yep. yep. So, so the whole thing with Nedry, it reminds, I don't know if this is going to translate well into a podcast, but it reminds me of that meme that I shared with you guys a few weeks ago where it's like Nedry asking for money and instead of Hammond denying him, he pays him. And then it's like cut to the card. Because there's no story. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Oh my God. It's true though. Yeah. Yeah. 
if you true. Yeah, there, there, <laughs> he would, he's just in it for money. All all Hammond had to do was negotiate, and it would have been fucking fine. And there's like there's like hints yeah. towards their their conflict in the movie when he's like, you know, I mm-hmm. you, I'm not going to get drawn into another financial debate with you. Um, and then yeah. he it that that back and forth ends on this really weird ominous note where he's where Hammond says to him, "I don't blame people for their mistakes, but I do ask that they pay for them," which is. There's a lot of ice in there. There's, there's a lot of, I don't know the whole backstory of that, mm-hmm. but like, there's some, there's some tension there. <laughs> there is. That is. And so just one weird point about Hammond. Sorry, my points about this film are all over the place. But <laughs> I, I really, so in my mind, so R- Richard Attenborough is David Attenborough's brother. Mm. And David Attenborough is like a famous naturalist documentarian. He's made like hours and hours and hours of footage. And I just like the headcanon for me of like, that's David Attenborough's real job. And like, I think of Richard Attenborough, like, like Hammond is his real job. Like he's like the, the shyster (laughs) version of David Attenborough exploiting the animals instead of admiring them. It just like, so I always think that that's like secretly Richard Attenborough's real job, even though he is an actor. Um, (laughs) But also like, you can kind of appreciate their, their physical, similarities um they they have some similarity in the face although david is a lot taller than richard was Mm. um but it's just like it's just like yeah it's just fixed for me like i'm sorry about the whole rest of your career like noted and celebrated actor richard attenborough in fact you are john hammond and john (laughs) hammond is david attenborough's brother (laughs) that's how it goes in my head yeah there's a lot there's a lot of actors like that where like i cannot separate them in my in my mind from a specific role Mm. Tommy Lee Jones as Samuel Gerard in The Fugitive, always <laughs> and forever. See, for me, it's Two Face from uh, the, oh, the Schumacher Batman. Good choice. Good choice. Um, the imprint. The imprint role. Yep. Like <laughs> I have. Uh, so I, I would just want to be respectful of everybody else's time. I um, had a lot of notes about the movie, but I feel like I've talked a lot. So I just, all I have left is two bonus questions that I want to ask both of you. But before I get to that, I just want to make sure that we've covered everything that y'all want to talk about. Um, so I'm just going to open up the floor to my guests. Oh, okay. Oh, I did want to touch on this. So I wanted, I was interested in y'all. Um, did any of the characters become tent poles in your sexual identity later? Cause I'm like, yeah, it took me a long time to discover that I'm not 100% straight. And when I go back and watch the film, I'm like casually observing my interest in both Dr. Sadler and Dr. Malcolm. And I'm like, oh. And then eventually I became a bisexual person. And I'm like, when did it start? Did it start in 1993? <laughs> <laughs> like, this happens for me. It's like looking back on something, I'm like, oh, the signs were all there. Like it just, it takes, it, it's so interesting learning more about yourself later and then looking back. Did that happen for either of you, for any of these characters? Uh, go ahead, Lou. Oh, okay. Um, I'm I'm also, uh, I, I use queer just cause it's like the easiest word for me, my sure. brain to come up with. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't I, I don't actually, I'm also very similar. Like I discovered later on in life that I'm more than straight or not just straight. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't, but well, the way, so I, I guess the point I'm driving towards is the phrase that I've landed on is I'm on the flag. Um, I, I feel like that's the easiest yeah. way for me to describe it. I don't know where I'm on. I don't know which stripe, but I'm on the flag somewhere. 
That's delightful. I really enjoy that. That's very happy and positive. Um, but I would say, yeah, this going every time, like ever since I've been able to, I would say, um, allow that part of myself to, and stop suppressing that part of myself. Every time I watch yeah. this movie, seeing Malcolm with his shirt open, all sweaty, like it gets me. It's like, oh, I, I get it now. I see it now. Now that I'm accepting that of myself. Yeah, that works. That definitely works. Um, yes and like shout out to brief objectification of men because like because like in a real world we wouldn't objectify each other ever but like that little moment is so like it it amuses me and makes me feel good and also like the way that they do it it's not totally plot supported but it is like a tiny bit plot supported. yeah yeah <laughs> but he's like he's uh, what, what i appreciated about it the most is gold bloom like whole ham embracing that that's what this is like i'm gonna be something to look at it reminds me of uh, chris hemworth hemsworth's excellent work in the ghostbusters reboot that was all women because yeah. he's just there to be a beefcake and he leans all the way in and that just it feels like a gift it feels like it's wrapped up in a bow specifically for me as a woman watching films in the past decades mm. so like it's like that that thing with Malcolm is like so presentational and so like it almost reminds me of like drag energy like it's just <laughs> there's something about it that is very specifically like meant to be erotic if you're looking at it in a certain way mm. like it's just I don't know there it is. Thanks, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. And he like he, he, the actor chose to like take that posture when he was getting his star on the Walk of Fame. Yes, like, yes. That was <laughs> I love it. Um, and then in terms of like everybody else in the movie, I think I think it would be like it's almost surprising to myself that my I don't I don't look at Ellie Sattler in in a certain way. Um, but I really genuinely think it's because this movie instilled such a deep sense of respect for her at such a young yeah. age. Like it mm -hmm. doesn't, like I said earlier, the movie itself doesn't objectify her, even though one of the characters does. I, this might be TMI, but you did ask the question. Um, I, did. <laughs> I had, I, I had an ex once who was like, do you, would you ever like want me to dress up like as as Ellie said, cause she knew that this is my favorite movie ever. She's like, would you ever want me to dress up as Ellie Sattler? And I was, and I thought about it and I was like, I honestly, I don't think I do. I don't, I don't think, I don't know if I want those two worlds to combine mm -hmm. in any way, as much as I admire and respect Dr. Sattler, I don't think I look at her in that way, mm -hmm. which is like a That's weird fair. thing. <laughs> That's so interesting. And also send her over to me. I'll take care of that situation. <laughs> <laughs> But like that's so interesting because for me, for me, what she twigs it, what she twigs for me is a competency mm. interest. Like I find competency to be very sexy. So like her, even even her digging through the shit, I'm like, yes, mom, I get that. Like get that information. <laughs> like she, um, yeah, it just, yeah, she's one of my pillars. I'm gonna say, mm. looking back on it, because like I, because it's like, do I want to be her or do I want to date her? Like this is an important piece of information that people have to like figure out as they as they age and figure out themselves but like it's that's so interesting Lou and I think it really Lou and it does really touch on how the film kept a respectful lens life and like you can you can move it out of the way like I did or you can keep it in place like <laughs> you I think that's the difference though is that it made me want to be her instead of wanting to be with her I wanted to be Ellie okay. Sattler if I want if I could oh, be anybody cool. in this movie it's her like so maybe that's, that's so what it great. is 
What about you, Charlene? Did did it swing anything for you? So, um, Elena, you know that uh, I've known that I'm bisexual, queer, whatever terminology. On the flag. Yeah. Uh, I go back and forth from all sorts of different terminology. Uh, I've known since, oh, it may have been middle school when we we had that uh, get together. Uh, and we had that huge conversation with a bunch of us girls and I'm telling you, I knew that a lot of you were not as straight as you thought you were. I knew all the way back then (laughs) (laughs) because most of the people that were in that room have now come out and said, well, I'm not actually straight. Mm -hmm. So but I, I've known for a while. Um, oh my god, that makes me so excited and happy. <laughs> um, like, so that would have been, yeah, you had a twenty-year head start on me and my self-concept. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because like it's funny because I had a conversation with you, Alana, where you were like, "If I was into girls, I'd totally date you," but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a premise for a film, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But um, as far as the characters, uh, so, yeah, there's a reason why Dr. Ian Malcolm is one of my favorites. Um, uh, Honestly, a little bit with Ellie, uh, but mostly... yeah, because she's just she's so serious and she's badass mm-hmm. and you know you, you, I, I don't see her in that way as much uh, there are definitely some other movies that it was it became very clear uh, that oh yeah like uh, I, I like both men and women uh, you know uh, but I don't know that this movie uh, made that any clearer for me, uh, but I, I, but yeah, I mean, y- you know that I've known for a long time and uh, was open about it for a while. Um, yeah, hmm. uh, earlier than us. And I, uh, I was open amongst friends, and then uh, there was this um, project, this English class project uh, that uh, Mr. Mikulak, um in like so senior year, uh, where I don't even remember what book it was attached to. Uh, But uh, this group decided that they were going to split people up uh, based on different characteristics and whatnot. And uh, I was the only person that when they asked, I don't remember if they asked if you're bisexual or if you're attracted to, you know, that was actually honest in that room and people were just shocked Hmm. so like 
I will say that we have definitely come a long way since we graduated high school. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm, I feel like, uh, like I have nieces and nephews. I don't have kids, but I feel optimistic that they're growing up in an environment where like, if that's who they are, they'll, they'll be able to express themselves without as much fear as, as like even just mm-hmm. half a generation ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of my strategy for my own children is I want to be like, I want to continue to be like a home base mm. where they can, whatever, whatever they feel like they have to mask out in the world because the world is cruel, but they can just take that off and be at home and just be comfortable. So whatever's, whatever else is going on with them, that's awesome. um, that they can relax with me, whatever that means. So knowing what we know about dinosaurs now, how they likely looked, uh, that they likely had feathers and that they probably did not roar. Does that affect how you see this movie now? Like, does it affect how you feel about the movie? So it does, because um, we were talking earlier about, like, whether this movie is depicting dinosaurs as as we, the audience, would imagine them up until seeing it. Oh, yeah. How, what is it, what is a dinosaur to you? Yeah, to me, to me, it's it's uh, like a fascinating thing. It's it very, very close. My answer is very close to Alana's that it represents something that it represents a time without humans. Like it's 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 crazy to think about the whole planet not having a single person on it. Um, and instead, there's these gigantic monsters that that nobody has ever seen. Uh, that just they, they what they sound like when you describe them are similar to descriptions of what like ancient civilizations described gods or dragons or you know the monsters that they would see um, or, or find fossils of or whatever discover whatever evidence of. So watching this movie with like twenty more years or thirty more thirty more years at this point of paleontology research and knowledge and everything that we've un- uncovered about it since then, I. I still think, like I said before, if I were John Hammond and I were making a dinosaur park, I might not want them to have feathers. I might not, I might feel like that looks silly compared to our cultural imagination, our collective cultural imagination. So I might engineer them to look more reptilian. I, uh, that um, reminded me that uh, another reason why they're fascinating, kind of what you were just saying Louis, about what I, about what I was just saying. Um, <laughs> is there, they're a memento mori for how species are. Like they remind us that we too shall pass. Like our time will not be forever, um, and that you can exist for millions of years and then cease to exist. And I think that always that will always make them haunting and creepy on some level, but also intriguing and very compelling. But like that's that's another aspect of what I think about. It's just a remi- reminder. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like it's fascinating to think about. Like none of them survived. Not there's not a single right. dinosaur that made it. Like, but at the same time, if you subscribe to Dr. Grant's theory of evolution, all of them survived in a way. They're yeah. just birds now. They're chickens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, that was a good question. Um, Charlene or uh, Lana, do you have and- more? Yeah, if you have any more questions, let me know. Do you have a favorite dinosaur that was in this movie? I have a favorite dinosaur because of this movie and it's the T-Rex. <laughs> I pre- previously I was like the typical kid, the Triceratops was my favorite. 
Um, when I was a kid, it was the one I always liked to draw the most, mm -hmm. which I think is the reason it was my favorite because it was easy to draw and interesting to draw. Um, it has a name that kind of tells you what it is. And like, <laughs> it's, it's just very cool looking. It looks like a, like a, a dinosaur that has weapons and a shield. Like, how cool is that? Yeah. But this movie made me just like it, the T-Rex is just the coolest and the most has the most presence and and in future um, sequels is like the coolest character in the whole franchise <laughs> yeah. uh, ultimately. <laughs> so like, yeah, this movie, this movie has made the T-Rex my favorite dinosaur now. What about y'all? Alana. Um. I like I I'm very caught on the on the visual reveal of the depending on what time like and depending on what era of scholarship you look at it's a brontosaurus or a brachiosaurus or an apatosaurus the ones with the huge necks yes because um, they they've been renamed and like reclassified several times and I don't actually know their proper name at this point but um, I love them because they're so improbable they remind me of giraffes like it's just like a what really like this is the design kind of situation. Um, and I like the little moment, even though it involves a snot joke that I don't appreciate. I enjoy the moment of them watching them be herbivores peacefully, yeah. um, looking at all the leaves. And also just thinking about how many leaves you'd actually have to consume to power a body that large. Um, it's just, it's very interesting. And I, it, it reminds me of how I continue to marvel at my pet tortoise because he eats like maybe 100 calories a day in vegetable matter. And he's just, going along fine. And it just, it, it just reminds me that the metabolism is so different. Yep. Um, and he doesn't need to generate heat for himself. Like, it's just, it's so interesting. So it's like, how many calories are they eating? It's probably a shockingly low amount, mm. but they're so big, like mm -hmm. they're so large. And like, it does remind you of sort of the ongoing debate of whether they were warm blooded or cold blooded. Cause that, that, that one comes through every generation of dinosaur scholarship is where they warm blooded or cold blooded. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's just very, yeah, so those guys, the, the, the vegetarians with the long necks, the, yeah. uh, they call them. So, yeah, my favorite are the long necks. Uh, and uh, every <laughs> watching this movie, having just recently listened to your podcast about the land before time, I couldn't stop thinking of the leaves as tree stars. <laughs> Tree stars. So oh. they weren't they weren't eating leaves. They were eating tree stars. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I love that connection. And I I think that they're my favorite because they are the first full reveal in the movie, and yeah. just they were just awe inspiring and mm -hmm. beautiful and gentle and just graceful and yeah yeah they're majestic mm -hmm. they're they, yes. and they the, the 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 animation still holds up in that scene even though we're seeing this full body of this giant thing and they have the audacity to put people next to it for contrast but this is like this is such an emblem of the era that we were in the actors there's a moment where the, the bra uh, Brachiosaurus goes up on its hind legs to get like a really tall, particular uh, tasty tree star. And when it comes back down, its front legs land and um, both Laura Dern and Sam Neill sort of stumble a little bit yep. the moment its feet hit the ground. So like the timing of that really helped. Um, and even though you can tell it's green screen when you look at it now, it's like it just everything is all of the elements 
put together are selling this moment, including the music that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it still holds up 30 years later compared to stuff that's come out like two years ago that just leans on entirely CG animation, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of like. They were just, they were really careful about, like they were inside their reach. They did not overreach. And you can really tell. Um, Cause yeah, it, it does look good. Like it, you can, you can tell if you scrutinize, especially like it doesn't, it doesn't hold up well to like an, an HD filter. Mm. Cause it was never designed for that. But very few things actually look good in an HD filter in my opinion anyway. Um, but yeah, like the, the painting aspect of it is definitely there, but it's not distracting. It's um, where they draw your eye in each of the matte paintings is really considered. Like it's just, it's, it's there. Mm. It holds up. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So is there anything that you would change about this movie, Lou? Oh, yeah. Yes. And actually, do you go by Lou or Louie? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) either, either is fine. I, um, I only ever say Louie G as like my introduction for myself at the time of the podcast, but I I don't insist on people calling me that. Um, Yeah, Lou, Lou is totally fine. I probably um, should have asked this at the very beginning, but uh, that's not how my brain works. So <laughs> <laughs> the the only it's it's hard it's hard to answer that because the only changes that I would want to make are things that ended up in the sequels, um, and it's just things that were in the sequences that were in the book that were really cool that I just was dying to see on screen and never got to. But now at this point, I have seen versions of them. Uh, like the riverboat thing and, and the T-Rex behind the waterfall. And especially though, the pterodactyls. I was a bit disappointed that we didn't see any flying lizards or um, ter- pteranodons or anything in this movie, but we get them a few movies later. So mm-hmm. it's okay. Yeah. Um, and I think it would have represented overreach for the effects capabilities at the time. Yeah. Probably would have. Yeah. So I, I don't wish that hard for it. I, I don't know if I would actually want to change anything. So uh, we talked about how Dr. Ian Malcolm, um, he is definitely a creep. Uh, question though, would either of you actually want to change him at all? Knowing what we like now that we're however many years later and we realize just how creepy he is, would we want to actually change his character at all? Or does he need that creepiness factor? That's a fascinating one. So, like, I, I, I think that, I think there's only one line that I would ditch, which is the like the super awkward, um, Doctor Sattler. I refuse to believe that you know nothing of attraction or whatever that line is. So hokey. Cringe. And it's like if you're gonna be like a slick rock star character, why would you do like a flirtatious dad joke? Like that just kills it off for me. Like it's. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not his best work like as a as a creeper like you could do better as a pickup artist um but the thing the thing that i do appreciate and actually still think is sexy is the thing with the water droplet mm. that thing is hot i wouldn't i wouldn't change that even though even though the energy behind it is creepy it's like, and what's really funny <laughs> is that she is calling to her boyfriend like look at what he's doing like yep. i watch like, this like do you not understand what is going on right now yep. <laughs> she's like she's a master right like she's probably gotten horse shit like that every day that she's been working <laughs> she just, like 
like she's like completely caught up in like the whole chaos theory thing and like she's learning something and that is all that is on her mind yeah right that's paramount exactly yeah Yeah. so uh dad joke was brought up uh (laughs) and i i will say that uh for somebody that doesn't want kids uh shoot i keep forgetting people's names Dad that doesn't want kids. Dr. Grant? Grant. Yes, thank you. (laughs) For somebody that doesn't want kids, his dad joke game, like, it... (laughs) So, uh, the electric fence. He looks up. (laughs) The lights are off. He throws a stick at it. And he's like, well, I guess that means the power's off. He grabs it, pretends like he's being electrocuted. Uh, and Lex is screaming and, you know, and he stops and he turns around and is smiling and laughing. And she's like, that's not funny. And Tim was like, that was hilarious. Strong uncle energy. <laughs> oh Sorry. yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah. He, he has that, like, I, I I can see how kids could be fun, but I don't want the responsibility of them. So I'll, like, have a moment of scaring the crap out of them, and that'll be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's strong uncle energy, from my experience. It is strong uncle energy, yeah. Um, kids are great on lease. Yeah. I'm uh, just keeping an eye on the time. I don't want to go too, too long. But if y'all... Um, have everything have anything else let me know otherwise we will move on to my bonus questions i'm good my list is crossed off i think i've hit on everything nice all right all right so that brings us to the section of the podcast where i ask my two bonus questions and i know these <laughs> first bonus question uh, Charlene, I'll let you answer first so that because you're you already know the question and then that'll give Elena a little more time to think about it. If we were to recast any two characters in this movie, including the dinosaurs with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito, who would you replace and in what way would that improve the film? Or would it improve the film? No, it would definitely would. That's not the question. We know that it would. Yeah, I'm asking how it would. <laughs> Okay, um, I, you know, I've been thinking about this since we said that we were, and I keep, I keep changing my mind. You know, uh, you might need to come back to me. <laughs> do you Atlanta, have an do you answer, have, Atlanta? Do you have one? Um, I have half of an answer. I would cast Whoopi Goldberg as the ink-spitting, what is it, Dilophosaurus? <laughs> okay. Because I appreciate that she is, her energy is that she's doing her own thing until she is disrespected. And uh, if if Nedry had just like not, um, it might have had a different outcome. Mm. So I like the idea that like, you seem benevolent, so I can just shade you. And she's like, I think the fuck not. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. And I'm trying to think where I would slot in Danny DeVito. And like my real answer is I would replace Richard Attenborough. So DeVito would be Hammond. But then my other answer is to make him be Dr. Wu. Because uh, I think that would be hilarious. Those, those are both inspired choices. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, DeVito uh, is Hammond. So I want to see time. that movie. 
You know what? I might actually replace uh, the uh, the DNA um, animation, Mr. DNA, with, Mr. DNA, uh, with Whoopi Goldberg. I like it. Choice. That's really good. Uh, and uh, Danny DeVito. Uh, Nedry, I think, because I think he could be hilarious. Mm. He he could, you know, I mean, like, the scenes with Nedry were already funny, but, Mm. like, I think he could bring it to an entirely different level. My answer is, I think that you're correct about Danny DeVito as John Hammond. I think that's the right answer. (laughs) But my mind goes to DeVito as Timmy. Um, Oh! (laughs) And we make no pretense that this is an adult playing a kid. It's just the character is still a child. It's just Danny DeVito is playing him. Um, And then Whoopi Goldberg as, I've, I've thought about this a lot, Ian Malcolm. Because she has so much presence and she can be in any movie and just be doing her own thing. And like, she's so independent. She has her own thing going on that just attracts other people to it. Um, And so like Malcolm is kind of that character in this movie. He doesn't rely on anybody else. He can be all by himself. So like, I I don't know, like, I don't want to lose Jeff Goldblum, but I just want to see what the version with Whoopi Goldberg would look like. And I think... Mm -hmm. I think it would rock. And I'm not, I'm not mad on her shooting her shot for Dr. Sattler. That's yeah, not my yeah. watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that changes that context, right? In a positive way. So, yeah. so we have fixed, we have, somebody called Steven Spielberg and let him know that we fixed his movie finally. We can't, we can't figure out the editing mistakes. We have no clever way to work around that, but we figured out the casting problems and um, we'll see if we can the get The inevitable re- reboot of the original. Exactly. Yes, we're ready. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right, my second bonus question. This is a section of Robots versus Dinosaurs that we call What's Yo Snack? So, Charlene, mm-hmm. Alana, what's yo snack? Um, so this is sort of a two-part question. One, do you have a when when it's legal to go to movie theaters, which currently it is, that might change in the next few months, like it did about a year yeah. ago. But um, mm-hmm. when it's legal to go to a movie theater, what is your favorite movie theater snack? And when you watch movies at home, do you have a different movie theater snack or do you recreate that snack? Do you want to take it first or? Sure. I'm a Sour Patch Kid stan. Um, (laughs) I choose them frequently when they're presented to me. It's also my um, gas station snack if I need a snack, which is hilarious because they offer no nutritional value and make you crash, but whatever. They're delicious. (laughs) Vitamin C. They're Uh, high in vitamin C, aren't they? I guess that could be argued, <laughs> and they are low Um, so yeah, that's my that's my that's my move in the theater. But I'm actually more likely to buy them at CVS and smuggle them in. But same thing, same experience. Um, <laughs> uh, I went to I, like I went to Black Widow with my children with our masks on, um, which is the first one I'd been to in like 18, 20 something months, and uh, the charge for the food was thirty eight dollars, and the tickets were twenty. I was like. Uh, Wow. But I, I did. I did kind of let them go out, like go all out, because we were celebrating. They 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 got like a slushy and something else, mm-hmm. and like I had popcorn. But I was like, mm, that hurts. But it reminded me why I used to be a smuggler. Yep. <laughs> um, and then at home, I make garbage nachos, which is when I take 
So when I take uh, the chips and then I do like the deli slices of cheese and just like make a layer and then I eat them and it's delicious. <laughs> That's what I do at all. <laughs> That's what I did last night when I was watching the film. Nice. <laughs> Where does the barbecue sauce come in though? Oh, yes. I I did have a side order of abandoned um, chicken nuggets for my children and barbecue sauce, which is how I soiled my Jurassic Park shirt and was therefore unprepared for today, costume-wise. Yeah, listeners, you can't see it, but I'm wearing a Jurassic Park shirt. Charlene is wearing a shirt with a dinosaur on it. Alana would have been wearing a Jurassic Park shirt, but as we've just found out, she snacked. She snacked too hard during this movie. It's true. Men plan, God laughs. <laughs> um, Charlene, what about you? Okay, so in a movie theater, um, so popcorn. Mm-hmm. Always popcorn with the butter, like extra butter, mm. which I know is not actual butter, but still, <laughs> it's delicious. If I'm so most of the time that I go and see a movie, uh, since uh, I've been married to him for 19 years now, uh, most of the movies I see are with Curtis and uh, he needs his Twizzlers, and I usually get to steal a few of those. Um, they uh, since they came out, the the bunch of crunch things, my most recent discovery are those pocky things oh hell yeah yeah those are great yeah mm-hmm. yeah the last movie that i that i saw in a theater i'm trying to remember what movie it was i'm pretty sure that it was it had star wars movie yeah 2015 was the force awakens 2017 was the last jedi 2019 was rise of skywalker not that I'm ready for another episode or anything. Like <laughs> we haven't done Star Wars yet, so I would love to do a Star Wars movie. It was popcorn, Twizzlers, and Pocky for that movie. Uh, at home, uh, popcorn. Uh, we we get the, it's always the movie theater butter popcorn that we get. Um, and... Lately, um, we've been watching a lot of movies while eating dinner. Rewatching this last night, uh, we had um, DiGiorno Supreme pizza. Yeah, uh, classic. And then made up some popcorn and um, various types of Aldi cookies. Uh, Aldi. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, I am, I'm a popcorn person. If I go to the movie theater, it's always, 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 I get a small popcorn and a soda. Um, at home though, I don't use a microwave because like, I don't like owning a microwave because it makes me cook less. So like, and I, and it encourages me to order food and just like reheat it. So I just, I try not to own a microwave, (laughs) which means that I cut myself off from having popcorn at home, unfortunately. Um, but sometimes I'll like get a bag of smart food or something like that if I really want to be feeling it. Uh, for this movie, though, the first time I saw it in the theater, I distinctly remember getting um, Sour Patch Kids. And <laughs> and like so every time I watch this movie, if I if I'm planning for it, if I know I'm going to be watching it, I will go get a pack of Sour Patch Kids just to be extra nostalgic. Um, so 
even though I watched, I literally rewatched this movie at 1130 last night. <laughs> I ate a bag of Sour Patch Kids, which is not, I don't recommend that to anybody listening to this. I don't recommend that's the time that you start eating Sour Patch Kids. Um, yeah. But it, it, in a way, it enhanced my enjoyment of this movie. So I have no regrets. I bet. I have a friend, I have a friend I visited um, who like their anniversary present to themselves was to make like a fancy home theater. And they had like purchased like the box style of different candies and they had it in, in like a drawer that you pull out. And I was like, this is inspired. And they're like, this is an important part of the experience. And I was like, I can't argue with that. That's, that's true. But it was, it was so cute. And yeah, like the box is, there's something about the box. Yeah. Yep. Instead yeah. of the bag. I'm going on and, I, and it occurs to me one of the reasons that we do the box is because it doesn't wrinkle yes and make noise yep. while we're all watching uh, and it that's what that was twizzlers are still in the bag and they're very loud yeah. I'm so <laughs> especially since yeah, yeah twizzlers like the movie theater packs like they are all like they're one big brick so yes. Curtis always makes sure to kind of break them all apart before the movie actually starts. <laughs> so that strategy. He he can be as quiet as possible. But yeah, yeah it been. used to be um uh, Brantford movie theater that had mm. the Walgreens right next to it. And you go to that one. And yes, and you'd go to the Walgreens beforehand. Mm-hmm. and you'd get your candy and then you'd go over to the theater and you would very nervously try and keep your candy hidden and you'd buy the popcorn and you'd buy the, the soda or the water and then you would be very relieved once you made it into the actual theater with your smuggled candy. <laughs> this, is, this is the reason I wore cargo pants in high school, not for fashion. For real. <laughs> I, used to put, I used to put them in my bra. Okay. I had, uh, I'm a big busted person and I could hide all kinds of shit in there. And not, no, one, no one would know. Yep. <laughs> It's like um, scarier than the TSA. Like you, you in high school with your smuggled candy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, th- this was really awesome. I had a great time talking to fans of Jurassic Park about my favorite movie, Jurassic Park. Um, so thank you very much for for bringing the show onto Robots and Dinosaur Robots and I just misnamed my own podcast. Thank you for bringing this movie onto robots versus dinosaurs um are would you would you both give the the uh, the dinosaurs in this movie a plus one neutral or minus one alana go ahead on what index what, what are we grading them on it's up to you uh, would you say so the I, way di- let's say the way dinosaurs are represented in this movie is it positive uh positive representation neutral or negative yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and give him the the plus one for this yeah they are uh of course depicted as dangerous uh but they're they're depicted as deserving like if, if we live simultaneously which i know they, ad- they address this in later franchises i just learned today <laughs> but just based on um if they coexisted they'd be at the top for sure um no matter what kind of hubris or arrogance we brought to the situation and so like the i guess the power of that gives me a plus one for them uh, I would also say plus one. Uh, just there is something about the dinosaurs in this movie 
uh, that like they are unforgettable. Uh, they, uh, I feel like they probably, they paved the way for a whole lot of other movies that came afterwards. Um, and like expand, like made the genre even more popular. Uh, Mm. and so a lot more movies were able to be made because of the, the money that this movie made because of the dinosaurs agreed oh you know can i can i amend mine as well Mm -hmm. charlene you just reminded me like the another reason why it's a plus one is all the kids including me who ran to the library to read about dinosaurs yes yeah good point that's an impact that's a plus one nice so like i still tell curtis because i all shows that are about digging in the ground and finding finding old stuff like paleontology or um, whatever the word is for um, when you're digging through um, like where humans used to live and whatnot. Like I still tell Curtis that uh, if I hadn't have hated school so much and if I could have afforded to have an education past high school, this is what I would have been doing. Like digging through the ground, looking for stuff uh, and just being super excited about like finding just the smallest things. Mm. Uh, Like um, The Curse of Oak Island is one of my favorite shows. uh, And I'm just the the scenes that they show where it's they've got the grids and they're very carefully searching and just uh, even the people that don't really have the patience when they actually get them working in mm. this and they find something, just the excitement level. So yeah, this, it's just, it's the whole kind of treasure hunt type of feel. Yeah. Yeah. Would so, you yeah. say this would you say this movie answers the question of which is cooler, robots or dinosaurs? Oh. Because we did we talked a little bit about the automation and that there are robots in this movie. There's that <laughs> arm that like takes the egg away. Um, but they're not <laughs> they're not obviously as as prominently depicted as the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So would you say Ooh, that this cars. movie um makes oh, yeah, the one cars. or the other look cooler? But the the question is though, the cars are vehicles. Mm. But, well, technically, though, they are being, they are manned. They're just not manned by somebody in the vehicle. So is a vehicle technically a robot, which is something that we've kind of talked about. Mm. Um, But (sighs) in this movie, definitely, yes, robots, because they're following a program. They're following a set of protocols and if then scenarios, um, so one hundred percent definitely, especially because there's no driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing the thing with the doors locking when they had nothing when they didn't do it, mm-hmm. um, that stayed with me a lot actually. The creepiness of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, is our dinosaurs cooler or our robots cooler in general? In general, or in this movie, or both? You using this movie as like supportive evidence uh 
Uh, dinosaurs. Yeah. I don't know. I still land on, I still land on robots as being more compelling for me, like as a, like as someone who looks for the content and look like as a sci-fi person, I still, I still get caught on the ethics of AI and how far you can take it before something is sentient, which is explored extensively in the West world. And other projects too, like I think it's actually called AI, whatever. I think it's, this, it's actually it's a Spielberg, it's another Spielberg work, the one with sure Haley Joel Osment. Yep. Yep. And that scene, like, just not sorry, not just to completely jump off, but that the scene where the robots are um, like gladiatorial style decommissioned is so upsetting. And why it's upsetting continues to fascinate me. Like, it's 20 years later, and I'm like, like, the mo- it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And I like I continue to visit that question. I think it's really interesting and it really reveals again some of the um cruelty that the human race is, is able to enact on other creatures. It's kind of unique in our species and it's just it's that one stayed with me. Yeah. And that yeah, that was Spielberg again. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So off of what she just said, my answer I might be kind of neutral as far as which uh, like, cause I love dinosaurs, but I also love robots and most of my favorite movies, I probably have more favorite movies that have robots in them, but at the same time, Jurassic Park looms large. Mm-hmm. To be fair, so, there are fewer dinosaur movies and like i think that proves just how much of an impact jurassic park has for being like the dinosaur movie and more or less resurrecting dinosaurs in pop culture kind of like you said there wasn't much there wasn't much in of dinosaurs up until this um and then it sort of sparked re-sparked interest in them and or i guess um, movie makers putting dinosaurs into movies um and we got a, a big resurgence of pop culture dinosaurs afterwards um, that's, a, that's reminding me that if if dinosaur information is on offer at a museum, I want to visit that museum way more. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. That's that is not true of AI displays and stuff. Like, there's not yeah, yeah. that that doesn't that those don't call like like I'm thinking about like the the tech museum in San Jose of in California. Like, there's this exhibit where you can ride on um, I forget what they're called, but the guy in Arrested Development rides one. Segway. Yes. So there, yeah, like I, I lived there when the Segway was debuting and that you, there was like an exhibit where you could ride on Segways and I was like, mm. uh, whatever. Um, but yeah, I will go to even the tiniest, um, natural, like, like, the, like, like a nature center where there's like a fossil of like a tribolite or something. I'm like, yes, bring that to me. I want to see it. Like <laughs> it, it's more it, like, it, it, it's like, if there's a way to experience it in a tactile way, I'm pro dinosaur, pro fossil. Nice. So, uh, we went to the zoo in Utah specifically because they had animatronic dinosaurs set up throughout the zoo. And I said to Curtis, I don't care if you want to go or not, we're going. I, I There is no way that I'm not seeing this. Oh, and awesome. it was amazing. It was so cool. So I think that is our answer. It's that it's not uh, dinosaurs or robots that are cooler. It's when the dinosaurs are robots. (laughs) 
Perfect. <laughs> and I think that That's is it. a perfect conclusion to the podcast. <laughs> um, unless you all have any more thoughts or final, final things to say about Jurassic Park today. I do want to stand the cinema, cinematography choice to have the actual T-Rex stand in front of the T-Rex fossil with the stupid banner falling. Yeah. It's a little bit extra, yeah. but it feels great. Yes. <laughs> it feels great to see that. Oh, you have the banner. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. That makes me so happy <laughs> when dinosaurs ruled the earth. It's the same. It's the same thing. Like, yeah, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, humans didn't have a prayer, man. Put all the money on dinosaurs. Mm. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm excited that, um, Alana, you especially want to talk about Star Wars in the future. Um, yes, I do. Charlene, I know that you're thinking about a couple of movies. Uh, you mentioned, if I could tease, maybe we might be covering Meet the Mitchells. Um, Mitchells versus the Machine. Oh, it's Mitchell's. I go, okay, I got the name of that entirely yeah. wrong. Sorry, the Mitchell's versus the machines. <laughs> the machines. Um, so, listeners, uh, you should get excited for more episodes with Charlene and Alana coming up. Uh, and th- again, thank you for being on today. I am really bad at um, saying goodbye at the end or wrapping it up. So, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw it to you to say goodbye to our listeners for today. Well, I hope we didn't spoil this for you since it was released in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do spoilers, and I hope that's cool with y'all, and thank you for listening. Mm. Of course, uh, don't you have uh, a clip at the beginning where you go through all the movies that we spoil? So Yeah, there's uh, a spoiler they, warning. They have been forewarned. You, you were warned before you listened to this. So uh, don't, yell, don't yell, yell at Lou in the comment section because this movie was ruined for you <laughs> and uh but do check this check the show notes again so you can check out snacksack.org which is the organization that alana serves and promotes um and also check out charlene's Redbubble and her blog uh which we're going to have a link to in the show notes and you can also always follow rate review and subscribe uh robots versus dinosaurs on every podcast app are we're on twitter facebook and instagram so follow us there um and you can also email me at robosvdinos at gmail.com if you have requests for movies that we should uh, review in the future or if you have questions or comments or hate mail I will, I will read your hate mail on air if you send it to me I just want fans to interact with me, so <laughs> fans or haters. Um, so thank you for tuning in to our first Jurassic Park episode. Uh, well, I guess, no, we did Jurassic Park 3 and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So I guess it's our third Jurassic, but the first time covering the movie Jurassic Park. Oh, gee. Oh, gee. Yes. Um, but we will see you next time. I told you I'm really bad at, at wrapping it up. <laughs> uh, so this is where the part where the music is going to cut me off. <laughs> that was so much fun. It's like, oh, the ghost of Stanley Kubrick in there scaring the shit out of the actors. <laughs> I'm just thinking this guy's a lawyer. He's supposed to be one of the smartest people in the room. And that's what comes out of his mouth. (laughs) Men plan, God laughs. This will look so much cooler. We're going with this. Showtime.